California Women's Crisis Counseling. My name is Laura. How can I help oh, you? Laura, I do have a crisis. I've killed someone, Laura. Are you listening to me? Huh? Who is this? Just one question. Do you think it's over, Sydney? Do you? Whoever it is, is now taking credit for Marine Prescott's murder. But we know who killed Marine Prescott. Billy Lewis and Stu Marker. I mean, they even told Sydney how they did it. Maybe there is a third killer. Guys, this was about cotton. We are not in any danger. We are not in any danger, says Candy, page 15. What the fuck is this? Somebody who'd kill to know where Sidney Prescott is. What do you know about trilogies? Well, all I know about movie trilogies is that one, all bets are off. Do you want to have this conversation with a polygraph? Is that a threat, detective? It's a threat. You'll know it. Was that a threat? Here's how I see it. I've got no house, no bodyguard, no movie, and I'm being stalked. Because someone wants to kill me? No, because someone wants to kill you. So now, starting now, I go where you go. That way, if someone wants to kill me, I'll be with you. And since they really want to kill you, they won't kill me. They'll kill you. Make sense? None. You are dealing with the concluding tractor of a trilogy. One, you gotta kill her who's gonna be superhuman. Number two, anyone including the main character can die. This means you sit. Gail, Dewey, whoever, um, call me back. I can only hear myself. I only hear you too, Sydney. I am not dreaming. I am not crazy. He was there in Woodsboro. It's not Woodsboro, Sydney. Looks like Stab 3 is back in production. You gotta be praying this one to be detailed. definitely going to be good. So. We got, oh. got lots to talk about tonight. Hell yeah, I got some uh, I got some what you've been watching. Uh, oh, so do I. Noise, noise. I got some news, got some bloody disgusting. Very nice, very nice. And... I'm switching it up. I am drinking pop tonight, but I'm also drinking some Fireball. Nice! boy. I love it. I was, well, here's the thing. was I was going to switch it up. I was going to like do what is called a Cinnamon Toast Crunch Shot. Oh, yeah. And, I, know, I know that one. But uh, I just took my rum chata out of the fucking freezer and realized that, unlike every other alcohol, rum chata actually fucking freezes. Oh, it's frozen. Now. <laughs> you know what you sh- you know what you should do, man, is you should uh get some friends over and make put it in the blender with the fireball and make like a slushy out of it. Ooh, you're turning me into an alcoholic, man. <laughs> this one time back in uh back in college, we uh it was like one in the morning and we had like uh like Jameson, Irish cream, and ice cream, and we were like fuck it let's just make a giant blended irish movie and it was amazing uh but this fireball is pretty fucking powerful on its own you know it's i have a bottle of fireball sitting in my cabinet i haven't touched in like a month fireball's uh, not bad though so to temper it i'm drinking i'm also drinking mountain dew game fuel 
Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. I was like, I like my, I like myself some Game Fuel from Mountain Dew when they release it. So I went to like a Dollar General and bought all three boxes they had. <laughs> yeah, I'm drinking uh, my beer of choice actually is from the Midwest. It's uh, it's Hams. Have you heard of that one? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, it's from uh, Minnesota. But uh, you can get it out here on the East Coast. But uh, it's good stuff, man. It's a uh, it's a solid solid beer, and it's like uh, you know six bucks for a six pack. So can't uh, beat that. Well, all right. I guess we should go ahead and uh, you know get into it. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of Cinecult Podcast. I am your host Cordell, and joining me is my co-host Luke. Do you like scary movies, Cordell? Yes, I do. What's your favorite scary movie? My life. <laughs> Mine too. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we got, uh, as you guys could have gotten from the question, we are back with another uh, screen review in our ongoing retrospective. You know, for six movies, this has been the longest retrospective ever. Yeah, are we gonna are we gonna redo Scream Five? No, I think no. we'll just make the listeners go look for that one. Oh, I I I don't even want to know how that episode sounds. I'm sure it sounds awful. Um, but we are coming to you today with our review of Scream Three. Hell and yeah! We're really excited to get uh, to talk that. But before we do it, we got some. What have you been watching? And uh, we got some news, so I guess we'll go ahead and start with what have you been watching? Um, I got a few, so I think I'll take the I'll take I'll take lead on this one. All right, hit us up. So I recently watched season five of this cost of this uh, show on Netflix called um, Rust to Riches. It's a show where they take like beat up cars like that basically time is forgotten and they flip them and turn them into like these beautiful works of art like full full on running drivable vehicles that you can that they sell for like uh six figures uh really good show if anyone is a car guy or car girl i definitely recommend uh it's called uh rust to riches it's about a it's about a garage in uh California called Gotham Garage. Okay. Uh, I recently went back and I rewatched the first three uh Pirates of the Caribbean films. Awesome. Love them. Great fun. Uh, dude, I love Pirates of the Caribbean like I mean, Johnny Depp aside, you have Bill Nye's Davy Jones, you got um Jeffrey Rush. Rush is Barbosa. You got the two guys that play Pintel and Rigetti. Mr. Gibbs. Obviously you got Orlando Bloom and um Keira Knightley. I don't oh, mind yes. I don't mind four and five, but it's the first three that I that like are my favorite. Yeah, I love the first three. I mean, I think they're all like, you know, it's it's just a lot of uh, just a lot of swashbuckling fun. I mean, Curse of the Black Pearl is awesome with the the zombie ghost pirates are cool. And yeah, I mean, uh, 
Davy Jones and his crew are like, and, and you know what's crazy is that was made in like 2007, and it's better CGI than like most of the shit we see nowadays. Oh it's, yeah, like you it's insane. Watch, you go back and watch those, and the CGI still holds up pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently watched this uh have you ever were you ever like a fan of masters of the universe nope never seen a single episode i know you talked about the uh the netflix show right okay you well liked? there was a show on there's a show on netflix that was it was marketed to it obviously it's a kid's show and it was kind of like a remake it was called she-ra princess of power that's not the that's not the kevin smith thing right no, this is something completely different. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I haven't heard of this. Um, Obviously, it's a kid's show, but it popped up on my, you know, you might like. And I gave it a watch, and I heard about the show when it first came out. You know, there was a lot of, like, you know, He-Man fans bitching, being like, oh, it's not my She-Ra. They got, like lgbt stuff in it and this and that and all the animation shit you know what i thought the show was pretty fine for i mean i have no frame of reference for she-ra so i really didn't go in with the kind of mindset of like let's see if this rapes my childhood (laughs) but uh no you know it's if you got kids and it's not a bad show. I mean, I enjoyed it, and I'm like, what, a 29 year old adult? I mean, I think that's the sign of a good uh, kid show, right? Is if you can still enjoy it as a as an adult. Um, what else have I been watching? I've uh, been spending a lot of time on Disney Plus the last week and a half. Oh, have you? Yep, I went and I rewatched the first three Home Alone films. <laughs> I know why you did that. Yeah, we want we gotta talk about Home Alone on here at some point. I want to talk about Home Alone three because this podcast uh, Cordell and I both listened to just uh, they fucking tore the shit out of Home Alone two and three. <laughs> Dude, what the fuck? Uh, here's what I'll tell you, Cordell, is I like Home Alone 2 almost as much as the original. I think it is a very worthy uh, sequel. I actually think 2 is better than the original. I wanted to talk to you about that. Why do you think that is? I want to hear your reasoning. Just because, you know, the stakes for me are like, I mean, now you're not, he's not home alone just in a house in Chicago. Now he's like in New York. He's in the Big Apple, like. I don't know. That just seems bigger and grander to me. And yeah. I don't know. There's just something more devious about the about the sticky bandits this time. Instead of like instead of robbing houses, now they're actually trying to rob a children's charity at Christmas. That's just fucking dastardly, man. Now, I will tell you, though, Home Alone 2 has the funniest pratfall for me, which I use a lot frequently. The, it makes me laugh every time. The whole, uh, what's that smell? Kerosene. Why the hell would anyone soak a rope in kerosene? 
That's <laughs> shoot. But no, I mean, I, 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 see, my thing though is I definitely I think Mar the old man Marley works for me a whole lot better than the pigeon lady. Um, and I think all the stuff with like Tim Curry in the plaza, and it's such a shame because I really love Tim Curry. But I think all that stuff he's kind of wasted in the movie, in my opinion. Oh, man. when Kevin gets Tim Curry and those uh, three others with the. Uh, TV recording, kind of like a gag of what they did in the original film. But he's like naming off his like, you was here last night and you were smooching with my brother. Little, like, little Mo with the gimpy leg. Pony <laughs> Bob, Cliff, and the security guard just happens to be named Cliff. Oh, I love that. That to me, that was one of my favorite gags but no man home alone one and two but home alone three now home alone three just to to cut you off really quick i only saw it once like when i was a kid and i remember thinking it was really funny but it's probably you know it's been a decade i I don't even know what i would think about it now but you say it's really good huh you know i still think it's funny i think you know yeah, Alex is no uh, Macaulay Calkins, but he still holds his own for the film. And I think, you know, it's even funnier because now you have four bad guys instead of two, which means he can set, like, sick uh, traps for four people. Of course, the traps he set, well, I don't know. The one guy getting, like, a motorized, like, mower dropped on his head that might kill someone well in all those movies they do shit that uh i remember someone did a test of like what would happen if you threw a paint can at someone and that would like kill you (laughs) well like in home alone three the the, one of the guys cuts this uh piece of string attached to the front door and, Mm -hmm. and the string causes like a tape measure to has like a delayed effect because the tape measure is reeling back in. But when it gets done, this trunk full of books comes flying out the fucking window and like lands on these guys. <laughs> it was a big ass trunk too. And then it's followed by a set of weights. Oh, that would hurt. Oh, you're making me crack up just thinking about it. Oh, I loved Home Alone 3. I would love to talk about that one. You know what? You know what annoys the shit out of me? What? The one of the hosts from said podcast that ripped that movie apart. He was so like, yeah, just like he's shredding up three, and then he's yelling at the other co-host because what other co-host is like, yeah, you know, this is okay for me. This doesn't bother me. And this is, it's like infuriating uh, the other guy because he's like, I cannot believe that this movie is shitting on the original Home Alone. And you're like, yeah, I'm fine with this. And then when they got to the next one, Home Alone 4, he's like, yeah, this isn't too bad. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I've I've seen Home Alone 4. It is not good. 
I I will never watch Home Alone four. I'm sorry to tell you, or Home Alone five, or the Disney Plus one. I just oh don't care. Oh gosh, that Disney Plus one, man. That one was so bad. <laughs> if you wanna, if you really wanna see just how soft Hollywood has become in showing children commit violence. Watch that Disney Plus one compared to the original Home Alone, and you're you're gonna be shocked. Oh, I, you couldn't even make the original Home Alone these days, you know? Like, uh, yeah, it's just it's a whole load of uh, yeah. I mean, Hollywood. That's that's how sad it is, you know? Like all the stuff in that one, like you know, they would like the even the whole gag with like the pizza delivery guy, right? And him playing the movie and all. Like they'd never do that now because Hollywood is so sanitized. But uh, uh, so Home Alone and then been trying to catch up on some Disney films that I've missed out on. I watched uh, Zootopia. Yeesh. I watched uh, Coco. I'm not sure. If you've seen I it. half watched Coco once. Look, I'm, I'm not going to say modern Disney movies aren't good movies. Like if they, if someone has them on, like, you know, I'll pay attention to them. But I just like I'm never like, let me watch these. <laughs> You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say I think Zootopia is the best one because I like the message. Like it 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 was kind of like a statement about like um it was like a you know it it takes place in a world where predators and prey basically live harmon- harmoniously but there's like the feelings of mistrust right there. What uh? What what, what, what do the predators out. eat? I don't know. <laughs> don't explain that in the movie, do they? <laughs> uh, but consider, but I mean, consider that there's a character in the movie named Giselle, who's is a gazelle, who's a famous singer, voiced by Shakira, and all her dancers are tigers. I mean, so, I, I, I mean, guess if, if the lesson is get along with people who don't like you, I guess I guess that's good. <laughs> well, I mean, we could probably use that in today's world. Did you uh did you watch Encanto out of curiosity? Did I watch what? Encanto. Encanto. Oh, Encanto. Um. That's the one about the girl with the family who's got all these different magical abilities. Yeah, I did actually see that one. I thought that one was okay. Yeah, I watched it. I thought... Fuck, I don't even know what I thought about it. <laughs> is the fireball hitting you already, Cordell? Or is Scream 3 going to be... I haven't, oh, okay, good. I haven't started yet. Okay. I got to hype myself up for this, man. Come on, uh, baby. Hi, hi, hi. Yeah, if anyway. you hear if you hear me at any point during the show go like that that just took a hit. <laughs> anyway, so you watched Zootopia, you watched uh what was the other Coco. one? Uh, Coco. Yeah, I, I saw like half of Coco. I remember it it looked really cool. Um I revisited uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Still haven't seen it. Uh, You're pretty high on that, though, right? Or did you go down on it? 
No, I'm still pretty high on it. Um, I think it's got one of the best villains of the franchise. I think Maz Mikkelsen did a great job. Um, looking, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I just have a tough time getting excited about it, man. I don't know. I I, pro- I should watch it before the end of the year, but I don't know. I got so much I need to watch before the end of the year, dude. It's not even funny. But, uh, and I think that's been it for me on what have I been watching. Just catching, oh, one other thing. I finished, uh, have you ever heard of this TV show on Netflix? On Netflix called The Crown. Yes. About uh, the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, I've heard I've heard good things about it. Yep, they put out part two of season six, which was like six episodes, and I finally finished that. So good stuff. You know what? I don't know how. I mean, I know the show is based on historical moments throughout the Queen's life. Like, it's based on her rule. I don't know how close to fact it is. But, you know, when I watch that and I walk away, I walk away with the idea, man, it would fucking suck to be the queen. Why? Because, like, everyone's all the politicking? The politics and, like, the way that she had to change her entire being to become the leader of the nation. Because... That's just what was expected of her. Yeah, but uh, maybe because I haven't seen this and I'm not totally familiar. In the UK, is, isn't the queen just like a figurehead? Like she doesn't really have power, right? It's all like the, the prime minister and all. Yes, like the queen, like the monarchy is really just a figurehead at this point. Which has led a lot of people in the modern day to even question why do we have a monarchy? Uh, but I don't know. I, I think some of the most uh powerful episodes got in like seasons five and six when they were dealing with uh the relationship between Charles and Princess Diana. Yeah, I know that's like a big, a big contentious point. Um. Season six, kind of like it picks up from like it, the death of Diana. And it goes all the way up to about 2004. That's where the series ends. So they kind of they kind of gloss over a few events. They gloss over like 9-11, uh, the Iraq war, Tony Blair. Okay, interesting. You want to know what I thought was fucking hilarious? The very last episode of the season, of the series, um, and they played out the scenario with, um, did you know that back in 2004, whatnot, you know Princess Diana's sons, uh, Prince Harry and Prince, uh, I know Prince Harry, but what was I, I, I have no idea, <laughs> to be honest with you. Oh my goodness, is Prince? Oh, Prince William. 
So did you know that in 2004, Prince William and Prince Harry went to like a costume party? And Prince Harry wore a Nazi uniform to it? No, I didn't. That's crazy. Yeah, it was a huge scandal for the royal family when it happened. They dedicated like half the episode to that. And I thought, because I don't know if you keep track of it in the news, but like, they, like Prince Harry had a big falling out with his family because of the that woman he married, Meghan Merkel. I mean, I know of it, but I, I can't tell you I, I follow like anything about the British in the news, honestly. But I know that like, yeah, he's, he lives over here now, doesn't he? Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he lives in he lives in L.A. But. I really feel like the creators of the show are like on board the anti Harry train because they never paint Harry in a good light at any point. They don't show him dealing with Princess Diana's death. They don't show him and his struggles growing up with the fame. They they only show him when he gets in trouble. I'm like, wow, this show really hates Prince Harry. Hmm. Now, is it like, it, uh, I guess, is, is it like officially sanctioned? Like, is the British government like? pro the show or is it just like netflix doing their own spin on it and it's netflix from what i understand the royal family laughs at the show they're like wow this is garbage (laughs) so interesting yeah so all six seasons of the crown that's done and that is it for me what have you been watching all right, I got a couple things. Um, a lot of 2023 kind of catch up slash trying to see new stuff. Um, the big fit, a couple big items. I won't talk about it too much, but I did go see uh, Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Ooh, how was that? I really liked it, but it definitely feels like I know he said there's a like four hour cut that's going to come out on streaming. And the thing in theaters was two and a half hours. And honestly, you could really tell they cut, like, a lot out, if that makes sense. Like, there's a whole lot of, like, jumps and stuff. Well, I mean, wouldn't you – are you going to watch the four-hour cut? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so just uh, succinctly, I think Joaquin Phoenix did an awesome job. Uh, Vanessa Kirby did a great job. And, uh, yeah, that basically covers, like, Napoleon's rise to power from, like, uh, him, like, first starting out as, like, an artillery officer during the French Revolution – all the way up until, you know, like Waterloo. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. A really good time. The visuals are really good. And uh, yeah, it really kind of gives you this look at like, yeah, on the battlefield, the guy was, you know, a tactical genius. Like he really was in his element. But we also get to see him like as this, you know, like kind of like vain, like insecure, like kind of what did he really want? You know what I mean? And Joaquin Phoenix kind of plays it sort of like, like, uh, you know, like we get the scene where he's like crowned emperor and like the way Joaquin Phoenix plays it, you're like, is this really what the guy wants? Like, you know what I mean? Like they kind of play with the ambiguity of it. So like they play with him being like a military genius, but him also acting like a tyrant, because that's the thing about what I don't understand about Napoleon's place in history is people will him 
but people also act like he's a tyrant. Now, um, honestly, the movie's really sympathetic to him. I wouldn't say it really shows him as a tyrant, honestly. Like, if anything... Well, I mean, like, look at... Uh, like, when they used him... Have you ever watched those Night at the Museum films? A uh, long time ago. I, I know he's in them, but I couldn't even tell you. When they used him in one of the films, they used him as one of the bad guys. Because... You know, some people he's a hero, some people he's a tyrant. No, this movie, honestly, the movie doesn't really show him as a tyrant. The movie kind of takes the tact of the movie, basically, as I interpreted it, kind of shows you that, you know, like, so all the aristocracy in Europe, right, view Napoleon as a threat because he didn't really come from, you know, he wasn't a king or royalty, he was, you know, a backwater kind of like artillery officer who basically through his military genius rose up and became the emperor of France. And we get repeated Cordell scenes of, you know, the snooty British and Austrians and Russians who are all like this uncouth man thinks he can tell us what to do. I mean, for Waterloo, right? Like he's, he's fighting the Duke of Wellington. The British guy. And I swear to God, every time this guy's on screen, he has the evil sneer. You know what I mean? That's how we know he's an evil Brit. And uh, I mean, even though I mean, so the big thrust of the movie is kind of the relationship between Napoleon and his queen, Josephine. And those two really go back and forth at each other, almost like verbally abusive towards each other a lot. And um, but beyond that, yeah, the movie, I think the movie is definitely sympathetic to Napoleon. It kind of shows him, I think, I think we're supposed to take it as like, you know, he's trying to fight against the uh, corrupt old order in Europe who's trying to put him down. You know what I mean? Is kind of how I would interpret it. But, yeah, I, I really recommend it. And once um, once it hits streaming or if a longer cut ever comes, I, I really say check it out. You know, give give it uh, give it a couple hours. Hmm. I might uh, check it out when it comes out on DVD. But uh, yeah, so another 2023 watch I watched was The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which is Universal's second Dracula movie from this year. The first one being Renfield. And uh, so this movie kind of takes a single chapter from the book of Dracula when Dracula is coming over from uh, Romania to Europe. He goes on board a ship, the Demeter. Yep, I've heard of this movie. And the, all, all, in all the books and movies, you basically just get like a short, like, you know, either narration or a quick flash of like, yeah, Dracula killed everyone on the ship. And then, you know, the ship sailed into England. And so this movie kind of is like, well, what was life like on that ship during that month? And uh, so we kind of follow the crew of this like ship sailing from Romania to England. And, you know, they pick up all these crates from the, uh, you know, gypsies over in Romania. And sure enough, Dracula is on board of it. And, uh, you know, at first he starts off by like killing all the animals on the ship. And then he starts picking off the crewmen one by one. And. I mean, honestly, this I, it wasn't a bad movie, but it didn't really do anything special. It takes the interesting tact of they kind of make Dracula into this like Nosferatu bat looking creature. 
Um, like he he talks a couple times in the movie, but like you never see him in human form. And I, I mean, I'm trying to think of like anything really. It's just kind of bland. Like you know, like okay, he's gonna pick off the crew people one by one. Like okay, it's uh it's pretty straightforward, paint by numbers kind of stuff. It has some cool moments. Like they have a little a, a little kid on board who uh you can kind of tell where that's going, but it takes a couple twists and turns. And uh, I mean, honestly, it's it's kind of like a lazy afternoon sort of watch. If it's streaming or you can watch it for free, I'd say it's worth your time, but I wouldn't pay for it. Yeah, I heard a lot of people basically just kind of shot the film down saying like it really adds nothing to the mystique of Dracula. No, not really. There's a couple cool kills, but it's uh, it's, there's nothing special with it. Um, and then, so, okay, I watched, do you like true crime documentaries, Cordo? Always. So, have you heard of, I last uh, weekend, I was looking for something to watch, and on HBO, I saw that they had a documentary I've always heard about, but never saw until last weekend, and it is, uh, Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. Have you heard of this? Uh, no, I have not. I don't have HBO, so my I really can only get the like true crime that's like on DVD. So uh, the, not Jesus Christ, the true crime that's on Netflix. Okay. Okay, so this documentary is about the uh, West Memphis Three, if you know what that is. Okay, that I've heard of. And uh, so basically, for anyone who doesn't know, in uh, 1993, uh, three young boys were basically found um, murdered and sexually mutilated in West Memphis, Arkansas. And the cops really couldn't find anyone, and they ended up arresting these three teenage boys and uh, so this documentary was actually filmed by HBO during their like kind of trials. And so they had access to, you know, the prosecution, the uh, defense attorneys, and we basically follow the case as it unfolds. And I got to say right off the bat, if you are squeamish, this is not the documentary for you because they show all the crime scene footage in graphic detail, um, which is not pleasant. And, I mean, it's children, right? Yep. Yeah, but, but uh, the boys that they ended up arresting and convicting, weren't they found to be innocent? Yeah, so there's actually three documentaries. This is the first part in a trilogy. And so this one only covered their trials and stuff. But, man, if you ever want to get pissed off at our justice system, Cordell, you got to watch this. <laughs> Because I'm not going to go into like extreme detail on the case, but basically the very first kid they arrested, the teenager, had an IQ of 72, right? The cops interrogated him for like four hours. Only two hours of that were actually recorded. The last two hours when he confessed to what he did, the defense proved in court that the cops basically – he was making statements that didn't add up with each other. And basically, like, 
they convicted this guy when the cops couldn't even say like, oh, I don't know why I didn't. We don't have any evidence or recording of him actually, uh, you know, the first half of his interrogation, if that makes sense. And so Ooh. he he implicates these two other teenagers. And uh, of course, these kids, you know, they're teenagers. They're all into like heavy metal and Metallica. And this uh, West Memphis is a very heavily, you know, Bible Belt kind of community so you you have the prosecution literally holding up like a notebook with like doodles of pentagrams and being like now why were you doodling this pentagram son and using that as evidence that these guys you know did unspeakable shit to little kids that doesn't mean shit and I'm doing a bad job of conveying this, Cordell, but literally we were watching this. It's like a two and a half hour documentary at like midnight. Like I was screaming at my TV. I was like, how the fuck can you convict someone off of like no evidence at all? But uh, so and yeah, so it does have a happy ending. All three of these guys were eventually released after, you know, a decade in prison. But um. Yeah, if you ever want to get really fucking mad, track down this uh, this documentary. <laughs> I might have to get HBO and watch this then. Yeah, I've heard of the West Memphis Three. It's a pretty notorious case. Yeah, like you just you you can't believe that like uh, the cops like literally all they had was the cops hearsay that like yeah this kid said this is what happened convict him and they fucking did. It's uh, it's outrageous. Well, that's what you get when you have, uh, you know, a fucking judicial system that doesn't actually want to put in the hard work of solving the case. They just want to open and shut case. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at any, if you look at any true crime case where the killer got away with doing what they did for so long, it's usually because the cops were doing a half-assed job because they just didn't really care. Oh, yeah. If, if you get into true crime, like, you quickly realize all these, like, big cases, like, so much of the time, it's because the cops totally fucked up. And that's why, um, like, the big case that always, uh, like, John Benet Ramsey, if you know about that one, Cordell, yeah, I've heard the, of the John Ramsey case. Like how the cops literally let like, you know, 100 people walk all over the crime scene and like didn't secure it and did like everything you're not supposed to do. And it's uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's so infuriating because there's a couple of really like cases where, you know, if the police had just done the job properly, it probably would be solved. You know what I mean? But, well, that's like um. Are you familiar with the name Chris Benoit? Uh, I know you're you're pretty big on that. That's the wrestler who murdered somebody. Yeah. That he was the wrestler that killed his uh, son and his wife and himself in June 2007. Mm-hmm. They uh, when the police discovered the crime scene, they determined within I don't even think it was 24 hours before they determined it was a murder-suicide 
like there was really no investigation. They just looked at it, said, yep, this is a murder-suicide. And while there is enough evidence to conclude that, yes, Chris Benoit is the man responsible for what happened that weekend, it just goes to show that cops, they don't care about combing through all the evidence and shit like that. They just want an open and shut case. And I think, you know, with true crime... You're going to see that a lot. If you read about like. There was a there was a serial killer in Canada named uh, Willie Picton. Have you ever heard of that guy? No, I haven't. He was this really disgusting human being. He owned a pig farm and everything. He like a lot of serial killers like prey on prostitutes. And he got away with doing shit for so long because not only did the cops do a half-assed job, but he was friends with a lot of them. So a lot of them never even considered him, you know, a suspect to even consider. So it's like, I don't know, true crime shit like that, when you hear about how bad cops are at their job, it's like, wow, you really should not be in a position like that. Well, it's just like the one that I think I always go to is uh, I think one of like Dahmer's victims, right? Like literally was like bloody and handcuffed and like ran like flagged down a cop. And then, and, they, you know, they drove it, him right back to Dahmer's apartment. And they, they yeah. like, it was just a gay level school. Like, the guy was, yeah, the guy was, like, fucking bleeding and bound up, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, a gay, gay thing. Like, it's just, yeah, you just, it's, and yeah, the thing with prostitutes and all that, that's, like, sadly, that's that's the reality, you know, a lot of the time is when it's the homeless or prostitutes or, you know, minorities, LGBT, getting killed, um, way too often the cops just don't care, you know? Well, yeah, um... Peter Sutcliffe, have you ever heard that name before? Uh, No. Peter Sutcliffe was a British serial killer. He went by the name the Yorkshire Ripper. Oh, yeah, I have heard that name. He killed several prostitutes and the police dragged their feet. But when Peter Sutcliffe accidentally murdered a 16-year-old girl who was like a store clerk or something, because he mistook her for a prostitute, then the police kicked the investigation into high gear. Mm-hmm. That's just how it goes. But yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. But uh, yeah, re- really good documentary, and there's two more, so I want to check it out. Um, and then just uh, one more 2023 watch that I drug my feet, but everyone gave this really good reviews is I went to the theater and I saw the newest uh, Godzilla minus one, uh, which is the I, Japanese Godzilla. I do want to see that when it comes out. You would really like this Cordell because this movie is all about immediate post-World War II Japan. Yep, that's exactly why I want to see it. Because uh, isn't the whole, like, mythos of Godzilla was he came amid the 
aftermath of the atomic bombs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this movie, this movie actually starts out with a really good hook because our main character, Cordell, um, is a failed kamikaze pilot. And so the movie starts out with him landing his plane on this kind of like isolated island where there's like a small Japanese base. And uh, the mechanics are like, OK, we, you landed here because you said something was wrong with your plane. but we can't find anything wrong with your plane. And immediately you like, you know, what's up, right, is the guy. The guy couldn't go through with it. And, you know, you get the guys being like, look, I the, the one like the one uh, guy is like, you know, well, that's not, you know, what kind of pilot, what kind of kamikaze pilot are you? And then, you know, another guy's like, well, look, I understand it. Why would you throw your life away for this? But, um, well, duh. I mean, can you not to get too off subject for a second, but the story of the kamikaze is probably one of the most fucked up from World War II. Like, these were like young men who were handpicked by the government, by the government, and says, You are going to fly your plane into American warships. Doesn't matter if you want to or not. Mm hmm. Like, if I was a pilot going to war, fine. But you asked me to intentionally crash into something? No. Oh, yeah. No, well, I mean, it's that's like, you know, the Japanese culture. I mean, I don't know. A lot of the guys, like, volunteered for it, right? I, I think. Uh, It was 50-50. Like, some volunteered and then others were basically uh it was like desperation on part of the, on the part of the Japanese military and they were like okay you 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 get in your plane go crash mm-hmm. but yeah well, that's why i think you might be interested in this movie but yeah so basically to make a long story short it turns out the island this guy landed on that's where godzilla kind of inhabits and uh Godzilla shows up like and I'm talking about like this is like in the first five minutes of the movie Godzilla attacks the Japanese base at night and uh, massacres basically everyone except for the pilot and this other guy. Well, he um, he gets back to Tokyo and uh, I mean, this movie pulls no punches like all his family is dead. (laughs) I think Cordell just took a shot. Oh, damn. But, like, we get a scene, dude, of, like, his elderly neighbor who's like, oh, you're back from war? And then she realizes, and she's like, she starts, like, beating, like, hitting him. She's like, you were supposed to be a kamikaze pilot if you'd done your job. Like, we might not have been killed. Like, it, it's pretty, like, it's hard to watch, honestly. And I know that was a real thing, you know? The Japanese, um, if you were a survivor, you weren't treated the best in post-war Japan. Okay, yeah, so to kind of give the listeners like a little bit of a history lesson for a second, Japan during World War II was ruled by very militaristic people who followed the Shinto religion. And the idea of Shinto is the idea that you believe the emperor is God and that to give your life in the field of battle is the highest honor that you could give to the emperor. And anything surrendering or surviving or 
anything other than, you know, basically like, you know, killing yourself as a kamikaze is seen as dishonorable and a shame. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it. And yeah, honestly, Cordell, this is the strength of the movie is it didn't even need Godzilla in it because I was that invested in like the story of this guy, because obviously, you know, he's dealing with a whole lot of guilt and PTSD. And I really think I, I don't think a whole lot of Japanese movies kind of deal with that, or at least I assume they don't. But, you know, we 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 watch our, our pilot, you know, as he's trying to rebuild his life in Japan. And like, you know, it kind of like he meets this woman and her baby and they sort of like strike up a little bit of a budding romance. But, you know, he's he wakes up screaming every night like it gets into the whole, you know, the unfortunate uh, PTSD and all. Yeah, I I hate saying that, but that's just what the culture was like in post-war Japan, you know. And that whole thing that we were talking about, that's why. When you listen to our soldiers who talked about fighting the Japanese and the Pacific, one of the reasons why they would have those bonsai charges is the whole point was to die in battle. Even if you were going to lose the even if the battle was you were going to lose it. Fuck it. Go do a bonsai charge. Just die and try to take some of the enemy with you. And a lot of Japanese soldiers who were captured. There's a. I'm trying to think of. I can't remember the guy's name. But when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. They used five. uh, Midget subs to try to that was supposed to go into the harbor to sink ships. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those subs ended up basically um, got grounded on the coast of the island. And one of the uh, one of the sailors died. The other one was captured by the United States military. And when the news was reached Japan that one of the pilots of the subs got captured they immediately struck him from the record like he never existed really i didn't know that Mm-hmm. that's crazy but uh not to i, I mean yeah so basically just as we're uh beyond the drama though obviously uh, the american those pesky americans set off the uh you know atomic bombs like you know the bikini atoll kind of testing and uh Awaken Godzilla and uh, oh, that'll the, piss him off. <laughs> and uh, soon enough, we get we, we uh, you know get Godzilla kind of ch- uh, stomping his way onto Japan and uh, you know b- uh, destroying buildings and uh, it kind of falls upon our pilot and his like basically friends because post war he's made like he basically gets a job on like a minesweeper. With a whole bunch of people, like one of them's a scientist. You have like you know the plucky kid, and they basically have to kind of band together with other ex-Japanese Navy people to stop Godzilla. And uh, yeah, I I really dug the hell out of this movie. I think you would really enjoy it, Cordell, because the the movie really is about post-war um, Japanese military people kind of 
dealing with the, you know, the fact that Japan lost and kind of rallying to come together and fight Godzilla. So, uh, yeah, I really, I really highly recommend it. Everyone check yeah, it out. Got, yeah, I'm going to check it out. You know, I'm always interested about things that are post-war Japan because, you know, when we when they lost the war, I mean, to this day, Japan does not officially have a military. You know, it's funny. That's actually a plot point in the movie. They actually talk about that. They have like stock footage of MacArthur, right? Yeah, MacArthur. And they actually talk about the fact that in the movie, the world of the movie, which takes place in like 1947, the Americans are letting the Japanese kind of bring back some of their warships to fight Godzilla. And that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, they are uh, after the um, after they after Japan surrendered, uh, MacArthur gave the order that all Japanese war machines like guns, ships, planes, all that was to be destroyed. And it was put in Japan's constitution that they could never again use war as like a justifiable means which is why when like we went over into Iraq Japan sent a contingent over to Iraq but it was only for like peacekeeping and stuff it was not for combat oh really interesting i didn't know that now Japan does have what they call like a self defense force but it is nothing like, you know, an actual military. However, mm-hmm. Japan has recently made a move to rebuild its navy. Yeah, well, it's a it's a tense and, world we live in. <laughs> well, you know what? I say let Japan have their fucking military, man. I mean, not to get too political, but I mean, we let Germany have a military again, didn't we? Well, now Japan is our ally, aren't they? Yeah. Us in Japan, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if we're if we're cool with them, you know, by all means. And, I mean, Japan lives, like, basically right next to North Korea and China. I'd want them to have a military. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So, yeah, but, uh, yeah, no, really, yeah, really good movie. Highly recommend it. Yeah, check it out, man. It's uh, It's awesome. But, uh, yeah, that's what I've got for what you've been watching. All right. We have some news. Yep, I'm on Bloody Disgusting. So are you a fan of the Terrifier films? Yeah, we've talked about it. I think uh, the first one's really good. I think the second one is a good slasher film, even it, but I do think it's over long. I know uh, part three is coming out in a year, right? October. Yep, so Lauren Lavera signs on to reprise her role as Sienna in Christmas Slasher sequel. Yeah, she was the uh, the main girl in Terrifier 2. I mean, she did all right in it. That's good. Um, are you a fan of Dario Argento? Hell yeah, man. Uh, his uh, classic Phenomena is now streaming on Screenbox. Good movie. I like it a lot. 
I love listening to people talk about Phenomena. Apparently that movie is so fucking confusing. Ah, uh, you should check it out, dude. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's fun. Um let's see. I'm trying to think what news there's been. I uh I know there's been news, but I haven't really kept up with it to be quite honest with you. I'm looking at some of uh we got twelve Kilo Santa horror movies to spread holiday feel for their for bloody disgusting's twelve days of creepness. <laughs> Punish. So you want me to go through this and read off the 12 days of Killer Santa movies? You know what? Yeah. Yeah, let's through them. What are their 12 Killer Santa movies? So the first one is Violent Night. Now, that's not even a horror movie, though. Yeah, that's like a diehard knockoff, isn't it? Yeah, I, I wanted to see that last year. I didn't get around to it. I've heard it was okay, though. Yeah, it's a really good film. I just, I mean, yeah, I mean, Santa is kills people in it, but it's not like he's a killer Santa. It's kind of weird to have that on this list. <laughs> um, they have the 2012 remake Silent Night. I still have to see it, but it looks pretty good. Follow have you seen that, that one? Nope. They follow that with Santa Slay. Love it. Great movie. Really fun. Have you seen that, Cordell? Uh, I want to. I actually, like, seen, like, clips of the film, and it looks pretty fucking funny. It's a lot of fun. Uh, there was, what the hell is that? Santa Jaws. Is that some, like, sci-fi movie shit? <laughs> uh, it's a horror comedy. It features a killer shark sporting a Santa hat on the loose. I'm looking at the fucking photo from this. In the, the photo I'm looking at, it's a shark. With glowing red eyes, with a Santa hat on his fin, impaling someone with what looks like a candy cane spiel coming out of its head. Well, that sounds uh, that... underwhelming. <laughs> okay. Christmas, bloody Christmas. Oh, I got words about this movie. <laughs> I think I talked about this movie. Yes, you did. Ugh, this is not a bad slasher film, but my god, it has the most annoying fucking characters. <laughs> the first 45 minutes of this movie, Cordell, is just this chick and this other guy, like, literally screaming. Like, if you think Rob Zombie dialogue is bad, it's these people being the, the most obnoxious assholes you can think of until they get killed. It's, ugh. It's it kind of like ruined the movie, honestly. 
Uh, follow that up on the list with Christmas Evil. Love it. Great movie. It's basically Taxi Driver, except the guy thinks he's Santa. Um, followed by this movie. I've never heard of it. It's called Sint. Never heard of it. Uh, leave it to Dick Moss, the mastermind behind Amsterdam, to transform the ghost into a, a Christmas ghost into a slasher. I have seen Ans- Amsterdam, and it's a fun, like, murder mystery slasher, so that could be cool. Next on the list is A Christmas Tale. Never heard of it. Um, it is by director Paco Plaza, who made a name from himself with Netflix's Veronica. Yeah, never heard of it. Deadly Games. Love it. Great movie. It's uh, it's like this weird like French. Home Alone kind of ripped it off. It about it's about this little kid who like booby traps his mansion against a killer, sort of pedophile Santa. I don't know. It's it's kind of weird. They mentioned that here in the article released a year before Home Alone. The plot has has an eerily similarity as as young Thomas sets booby traps in his house to ward off an intruder. The critical difference is that Deadly Games leans hard into the horror, bringing bloodshed that Home Alone never dared. Yeah, this guy actually, like, kills people. It's a it's a cool movie. I recommend it. It's on Shudder, I think. Um, Next on the list is Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. Ayo. Garbage Day. Punish. Followed by... Everyone's best film, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Punish! Punish! Naughty! I need to rewatch that. I love Silent Night, Deadly Night. And then, finally, uh, the number one is Tales from the Crypt. But I think this is the 70s version. Yeah, I know, I know the 70s one has the Santa story in it, too. But, I mean, I love the, uh, uh, well, I mean, we just talked about it on our last episode. The the 90s one is, I watch that every Christmas. It's awesome. Yeah, this one's from, like, the 70s movies. Huh. Maybe I should check it out. Uh, read the, so this classic horror anthology features five segments based on EC comic stories. The wraparound features five strangers confronted by a crypt keeper who regales them with tales of their demises. The first segment, all through and all through the house, comes in the 35th issue of The Vault of Horror, sees Joanne Clayton battling it out with an escape maniac dressed in a Santa suit. The story is so good that it was adapted a second time for the Tales from the Crypt TV series. Which is an awesome episode. And that is it for the 12 Days of Cryptmas. I'm trying to think if they missed anything. Nothing really comes to mind. I mean, I know there's a couple Killer Santa movies. I um, say Killer Santa, I mean, because I was thinking, well, wait a minute, what about Black Christmas? But there was no Santa in that movie. Yeah, that doesn't have a Killer Santa. Don't Open Till Christmas is the twist. 
where the killer goes around killing Santas instead of being a killer Santa. But I've heard I heard that was a good one. Yeah, that movie's a lot of fun. It's uh by the people who did Pieces. If you ever saw that, it's very sleazy. Um, did you know three days ago it was announced that Universal and Blumhouse are teaming up to make a to on a remake of Speak No Evil? No, I didn't. Um, right here, Universal and Blumhouse's Speak No Evil remake rate is rated R for strong violence and sexual content. Oh, so they already made it. Okay, that's uh, cool. Universal will release Speak No Evil into theaters on August 9th of 2024. I've heard of the original one, but I can't oh, say. I... Hold on. The original movie came out in 2022. And they got yeah. a remake of it coming out two years later. <laughs> I would say uh, probably just watch the original then. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. You at least got to have five to ten years before you can fucking consider something a remake. What the Okay, this pisses me off, dude. I don't well, like you know. That. You know, us Americans might not understand the uh, the original movie. <laughs> I don't care. Um, hold on. So we had twelve Killer Santa movies. We've got ten holiday horror movies. Um, what the fuck? Okay. So, the brain? Ugh, it's not that great. <laughs> uh, the Conjuring 2? That's not, I mean, yeah, I guess that's a holiday movie. Uh, Dawn of the Dead? This is just shit that, like, sort of has, like, a Christmas tree in the background. <laughs> this isn't Christmas movies. This is stupid. It says, well, the film wasn't intended to take place over Christmas. Romero and crew filmed in Monroe Mall during Christmas time. <laughs> um, the Day of the Beast. I've heard of it. Never seen it. I, Madman. Heard of it. Never seen it. Inside. I really want to see it. I've heard that one's really good. That's like the French extreme. Oh, here's my... Okay. I love this movie, but I don't see... Uh, They got Maniac Cop 2 on here. Does that take place at Christmas? Um, It's a sequel that manages to top the original, and in true 90s style, Maniac Cop 2 even comes with a rap theme song, all set over Christmas time. I, I've oh, seen yeah, it a couple the, times. I don't remember it oh, being yeah, at Christmas. The, the, there's a picture here of um, Bruce Campbell in the film when he was uh, at the beginning of the film. When he was in uh, at the police station being told that he was cleared of all wrong, any wrongdoing. There's a Christmas tree in the background. Oh, it's a Christmas movie. Why don't we cover that one? <laughs> uh, Prometheus. 
Saw it a long time ago. Don't remember a lot about it. Uh, Rabid? Oh, the Cronenberg movie. Love it. Great movie. It's a very cold movie, so I kind of, I can see it. Soul Survivor. Heard of it. Yeah, none of the movies on this list, even Maniac Cop 2, would I consider holiday horror. (laughs) Maniac Cop 2 isn't like a Christmas movie for you, Cordell? It's not. Okay, let's just put it this way. When I watch Maniac Cop 2, Christmas is, like, not on my mind. (laughs) Particularly when that movie feels like it just takes place, like, what, couple days after? I'm trying. Does it take place a couple days after? uh... That's what it feels like when you watch them. Yeah, but that doesn't make... Because the first movie takes place on fucking uh, St. Patty's Day. Yeah. Yeah. So it has to be, like, you know, seven months later or whatever. I guess that would explain why Cordell looks so fucked up in the second one. He's been, uh... Yeah, he's been rotting underwater for a while. Actually, that does make sense, doesn't it? Because, yeah, he does look more like... He actually looks like a zombie in part two. Um. All right. Shall we get on to our main feature? Yeah, I do. Speaking of Scream, I do want to... So I can't find any article on it right now, but the hearsay, an update on our battle between Melissa Barrera and Spyglass... So the rumor coming out of Hollywood right now is that Spyglass called Melissa uh, called Melissa Barrera and asked for like a face to face sit down and they asked her to come back. But the kicker was they asked her to recant her support for the Palestinian people. Well, yeah, I mean, they got nothing but bad publicity about firing her. But the whole, you know, just take it all back and we'll take you back. I mean, that's just, that's really slimy to my mind. Yeah, that's, I don't know, man. I hope, I hope Spyglass fucking like hits rock bottom. Yeah, sad sad to hear, as we talked about in our last episode, but yeah, I mean, honestly, like, fuck (laughs) them. All right, so do you want to get into Scream 3? Hell yeah, brother, I'm hyped. All righty, so Scream 3, directed by Wes Craven. From the year 2000. Was yep, I was about to say it was released in the United States on February fourth, two thousand. Had a budget of forty million. Made wow, a, that's high. Yep, it made a hundred and sixty one point eight million at the box office, so it made its money back. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that. How does that compare to Scream Two? Out of curiosity. Uh, good question. Red, red coat. 
Good point. Point. <laughs> uh, screen three stars David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox. Oh, she's actually listed on here as Courtney Cox Arquette. Yeah, they were married at this point. Uh, Patrick Dempsey, Scott Foley, Lance Hendrickson, Matt Keesler. Tesla? Mm. I don't know. Jennifer, Jenny McCarthy, Emily Mortimer, Parker Posey, Dion Richmond, Patrick Warburton. With I, always, I always forget about him. <laughs> with special guest, basically cameos by Jason Muse and Kevin Smith, Carrie Fisher. And Jamie Kennedy. Woo! Oh, and a special cameo by Liev Schreiber, too. Yeah, he gets the, like, and Liev Schreiber. (laughs) Well, you know, he kind of got relegated back to a cameo bit in this one. Mm Mm-hmm. Little bit more than the first one, but a lot less than Scream 2. Yep, poor Liev. Yep. So before, as we get into this, I'm going to start with our first piece of trivia for the night. Courtney Cox remarked about her relationship with then husband David Arquette in relation to the Scream franchise. I was just flirting with David on the first film. I was sleeping with him in the second, and we shared a trailer in the third. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. That's so, honestly really sweet, is the evolution between, you know, Courtney Cox and David Arquette through the uh, through the films. All right, so I'm going to turn this over to you. I'm going to keep an eye on... I'll just... Pop in every once in a while with some trivia and some thoughts, but I'm going to turn this over to you. And you watched this movie twice, right? I think. Oh, I fucking love this movie. Spoiler alert. I'm showing my hand a little bit here. All right. Scream. No, I mean, that's something because I think for most people, it should be said. I bet if, if you ask most people, they'll tell you this is the worst in the franchise. Yeah, they what can did, suck my dick. <laughs> what do we? They can suck mine too. I'll, I'll show my hand a little early. <laughs> so, Scream Three, man. Uh, and I did watch the new 4K transfer on Vudu, uh, which was looked pretty damn good. I gotta say, definitely need to pick up, pick up the box set. But yeah, so that $40 million budget gets put to good use because we open up with a helicopter shot on the Hollywood sign. So uh, Scream 3 has come uh, come full sale. Yeah, the, the, you want to see what that $40 million was? Here's a helicopter shot. No, oh, it's impressive. And, uh, you know, so it, uh, we see the Hollywood sign and we kind of overhear a news broadcast saying that there's a massive traffic jam in L.A., which I've never been to L.A., but apparently it has the worst traffic in the entire country. So I can believe that. And, uh, yeah, we see our 
I don't want to say star, but, you know, one of our main characters from this franchise so far, sort of main character, uh, Cotton Weary, Liev Shriver, he's stuck in L.A. traffic talking on his car phone. And it's kind it's kind of funny, Cordell, because I had like I was like, oh, this is 2000. Who had car phones still? And then later he pulls out a cell phone. So I was like, oh, OK. But uh, you can see that uh, Cotton is now a talk show host. And what's the name of his show, Cordell? Um, oh, no, don't I, drop the ball, Cordell. Come on. I didn't pay attention. I don't pay attention to Cotton Wheelie, man. <laughs> well, he has a talk show that's called 100% Cotton. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> no, you didn't get that. I get oh. the joke now that you said it when I when when I watch this movie I'm just kinda like Eh Cotton is still at it with his boy I mean it's kinda funny to see where he's at now. Like he's really riding the coattails of his infamy. Well you saw that at the end of Scream too, right? When he's like all the reporters, he's like, listen. Everything has a time and a place, and yes, a price. <laughs> but uh, so he's talking on the phone, though, I guess his agent or someone, and he's talking about how I guess he's filmed the cameo in uh, Stab 3. And he's kind of like, you know, making fun of it. He's like, this is just a cameo in a cheap slasher film. He's like, I want like over a million. Why can't they write me a decent fucking part? <laughs> Well, he gets a call on his cellular phone, and uh, he picks it up, and it's some woman who basically is like, oh, I'm sorry, I have the wrong number. And she's like, wait, you have the same voice as that, you know, sexy uh, talk show host, Cotton Weary, and Cotton immediately goes to back to his other line. He's like, all right, I'll call you back. <laughs> so he starts talking to this chick on the phone. And uh, I noticed something I never caught before, Cordell, is uh, he's like, why don't you tell me your name? And uh, she goes, you're a naughty boy, Cotton. What would your girlfriend think of that? And he goes, what makes you think I have a girlfriend? And I never noticed this before, but that's a callback. Mm -hmm. To uh, the the opening of Scream 1, when Casey Becker is like, why do you want to know if I have a boyfriend? Oh, why? You want to ask me out on a date? But yeah, that's that's totally a fucking callback. You know what I mean? And uh, so this is when uh, Cotton, the voice changes to Ghostface. And we realize that in this movie, Ghostface can change his voice, Cordell. Yep. Ghostface. And he tells Cotton, he's like, because I'm watching your girlfriend right now in the shower. She's got a nice little voice. (laughs) And so we cut to a POV shot of uh, someone watching Cotton's uh, girlfriend in the shower, which is the closest we will ever come in a screen film to nudity. I think we get a little butt. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is his girlfriend, Christine, played by an actress named Kelly Rutherford. Thanks for playing, Kelly. Never heard of you. Um, not seeing a whole lot on her. 
she was in Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. Oh, really? No way. That movie's kind of fun. Uh, Christmas Wedding Planner. She's had a bigger career on TV than she has in film. Like, she was on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. Um, Melrose Place. Ah, the soap actress. Bones, Gossip Girl. So yeah, she's a she's a t- she's more of a TV actress than a film actress, but nice to have her here, Kelly. So Ghostface, he he basically is talking to Cotton, and he's he, the whole point of his call is he has Cotton. He's like, "Where's Sidney Prescott?" And Cotton is like, "Fuck you!" And uh, Ghostface is like, "Oh, wrong answer." And uh. So uh, Cotton, I think Ghostface hangs up on Cotton. And, uh, you know, Ghostface is really lucky, Cordell. I had this thought, actually. What would Ghostface have done if Cotton was actually stuck in traffic and, like, you know, two hours away? (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Because very fortunately, Cotton is able to just, you know, like, swerve, swerve out of traffic and, like, find his exit. You know, it may... So I want to ask you something. Do you think that Cotton gets a little bit of a redemption heel. Because Ghostface wants to know Sidney Prescott's location. And he even says, Cotton, you have connections, you can find her, you know where she is. And Cotton's just like, nah, fuck you. And it's going to cost him his life and his girlfriend's life. But he will not give up Sydney's location to Ghostface. Do you think that kind of gives Cotton a little bit of a redemption? You know, I never thought about it that way, but now that you say that, yeah, yeah, I can kind of see that. Yeah, I think I think Cotton Cotton goes out heroically. I would say, even if he is at his heart kind of a scumbag. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna find out in this movie. Like Hollywood's just full of that. So. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so Cotton's trying, he's swerving through traffic, and we get all these cool scenes of Cotton basically, like, breaking every traffic law ever and, like, running through red lights and, um, you know, driving into oncoming traffic, and he's trying to call his girlfriend. Well, we keep cutting back to his apartment, or actually, I think it's, like, his townhouse or something like that, and uh, his girlfriend, Christine, she gets out of the shower and uh, she does a terrible job drying herself off. Did you notice that, Cordell? <laughs> Just a couple, like, pats here with the towel and, like, okay, I'm ready. Like, her, like, head and shoulders are still, like, covered in water when she's, like, wa- and, like, she's walking down the hall. She's leaving, like, trails of water. I'm like, what? The-? I'm like, what? Good. Dry yourself off. God damn. But uh, so Cotton uh, he keeps he tries to call nine one one next, and the operator's like, due to the high volume of calls, we can't reach. You know, there's no officers available. Which you know, I mean, going back to the police being useless. And uh, we see back in the apartment as Christine she puts on this like black nightie or whatever. We see the phone line's been cut. 
And uh, so she starts walking down uh, down the hall of the apartment. Well, someone turns on some music, and I think it's some like heavy metal. I don't know if it's Creed or not. I know Creed is like a big part of this movie soundtrack. But uh, she hears Cotton's voice, you know, and he's basically like, hey, babe, I'm home. And she's like, oh, you scared the shit out of me. Is this part of your stab game? So I guess Cotton likes to, you know, role play his ghost face or something. Oh, geez. (laughs) Hey, I see Cordell's Facebook post. Don't tell me you wouldn't be into it. Yeah, but with me, it'd probably be Michael Myers. You hear that, ladies? Hey. There's a. Hey, I'm not judging. Well, she she turns around the corner and a uh, fucking ghost face pops up. Well, he uh he chases her down the hall. <laughs> she slips and uh, fucking water on the floor because she didn't dry herself off. And Ghostface gets her down. Well, I gotta say she does pretty good because she kicks Ghostface right in the face. <laughs> Did you catch that? Oh, dude, I'm gonna say something. This movie. So. It should be noted with Scream 3 that this movie came out not long after the Columbine High School Massacre. And, you know, everyone knows that in the aftermath of that, mo- I mean, that there's no way to say it, Columbine was a horrific tragedy. Mm-hmm. And in the aftermath of that, Society got really critical of violence in video games and movies and that. And this movie got the brunt of it. A lot of the gore has has been toned down. Um, Almost none of the cast here are teenagers. The studio even tried to go for no blood at all in this movie. Which, thank God, they didn't do because that would have, like, really hurt this film but when we do see like gore and everything it's always in the aftermath but even if this movie went light on like the stabbing and the gore the fucking like beat downs that go on in this movie are fucking insane yeah, you know what? I'm just going to say right off the top, Cordell, I know that that kind of gets leveled against this movie a lot is the toned down gore. But honestly, I don't know. Scream has never been the world's most gory franchise. No, it hasn't. Even the original wasn't that gory. I mean, the no. most the most gore you got out of the original Scream was the opening kills with Casey Becker and a boyfriend. Her boyfriend got gutted in the chair, and then Casey got strung up on the tree. Mm-hmm. But that was about as far as the gore went in that. And I mean, what, Scream 2 was hardly that gory. Yeah, Scream 2. I mean... Uh, this movie, definitely, we don't get as many shots of, like, people, you know, bleeding while getting stabbed. But uh, for me, it, it never really bothers me, is what I'll say. It never annoys me to the point of, like, say, Friday the 13th Part 7 or anything like that. Like, I, I think the movie's fine, I, I guess is what I would say. You know, I'm going to go ahead and just say this. A movie does not have to be overtly gory to be a good horror movie. Mm-hmm. 
Like, look at the original Halloween. There's hardly any blood, any gore in that movie, and it's a fucking classic. And to to go more go to the point of Scream, in every movie, the killer is a different person. Some people are going to be better at killing than others, you know? Oh, yeah, okay, we can... That's always a good argument. Oh, no, I'm going to point it out. In this movie, Ghostface loves stabbing people in the back. Did you notice that? He oh, just yeah. cannot re- he cannot resist stabbing people in the back. He oh yeah, he's it. a backstabber. <laughs> but um anyway, so she kicks she kicks Ghostface in the face. She gets in like Cotton's office, locks the door, and uh, you know, uh she hears Cotton's voice from the other side of the door. And I gotta say, I was kind of amused because after getting kicked in the face, Ghostface sounds pissed. Did you catch that? He's like breathing heavy. He's like, he's like, babe, I didn't mean it. I just wanted to, you know, up the game. And she's like, what game? He's like, uh, you know, uh, the game. It's going to be so much fun to rip your fucking insides out. Because that always made a, wet, a woman wet down there. <laughs> well, uh, so Ghostface, he starts stabbing through the door. And so we cut to Cotton. He rolls up in his car outside. and He gets into the door and takes off his uh, jacket. And Liev Schreiber's pretty jacked, dude. He's, he's a built guy. Oh, yeah, Liev Schreiber, he's... He's not somebody... I mean, have you seen him at, like in X-Men Wolverines? Yeah, he's a... Uh... He could kick your ass, yeah. Okay, he's a jacked up motherfucker. <laughs> so he grabs a fire poker and he goes through the house. He's like, you know, calling out Christine, Christine. Well, he sees the door to his office with all the stab uh, marks in it. And, uh, you know, he's like, Christine, open the door, which, you know, is exactly what Ghostface was saying in his voice a couple minutes earlier. So she doesn't open the door. Well, Cotton... I kind of question, I mean, I get why he does it, but he basically busts in and smashes down the door. Well, Christine pops out with a golf club and she's swinging at him because she thinks he's the one who's been trying to attack her. And, you know, Cotton's basically like, you know, calm down, put up the, you know, put down the golf club. Well, she kind of backs up up against the door and uh, Ghostface comes up from behind her and he stabs her right in the back. Case in point. <laughs> well, Ghostface then goes after Cotton, and I think he slashes him across the arm, and uh, Cotton falls back behind his desk. Well, he pops back up, and I gotta say, Cotton, uh, he puts up a pretty good fight. That one shot where he, he like grabs Ghostface by like the neck and slams him into the fucking bookshelf. Um. Oh, yeah. I truly think that if Ghostface hadn't, like, cheated the way he's going to heal, Cotton probably could have taken him down. Yeah, C- Cotton puts up a good fight. What does he do? Ghostface, like, whacks him in the head or something? Yeah, he dirty fights. He, like, beats Cotton in the head and throws him over the desk. Well, Ghostface gets on top of him and he you know, starts... Gotta, you know, he stabs Christine in the back, but he, like, st- he stabs her once, doesn't he? Yeah, he only stabs her once. Yeah, I feel like Christine could have survived. I mean, I guess it depends on where he planted the knife in her in her back, but there's going to be some times when he stabs people in this movie 
And I'm like, well, they could have survived that. <laughs> well, I do think this is the one thing I did notice is when he goes to stab Cotton, we only see him stab Cotton once. But I think they cut stuff out because it then cuts to like Cotton and the whole front of his shirt is covered in blood. Did you notice that? So I kind of I kind of thought I was like, I bet they showed him stabbing the shit out of Cotton and they just, uh, you know, they cut it out. Well, I, the way I saw it was he stabbed him once in, like, the stomach or something. Cotton goes down. And then he go, he, uh, he co- Ghostface uh, kneels down over Cotton and he says, the game was simple. All you had to tell me where Sidney Prescott was. Now you lose. And then that's when he does the killing blow. Mm-hmm. And that's when we uh, and he does this in Cotton's voice. So this is, you know, once again, the reveal that Ghostface can uh, change voices. And that's when we cut. Right. I'm not going to lie. I want that device. I know. Right. How cool would that be? I want to prank call my brother. (laughs) Hmm. So this is when we cut to the Scream 3 graphic. Uh, you know, title card pops up, and I love the uh, the like three graphic. I think that looks super cool. Oh yeah. And uh, so we cut to like the scenic California mountain woodsy area, and we see uh, Sydney Prescott, Nev Campbell. She's walking with a dog, and uh, she goes up to like an isolated mountain cabin where she's living. And I did notice this time, Cordell, when she comes in the door, there is a uh, Windsor College drama uh, poster. Did you notice that? Yep. Um, it's something else uh, in this. Not only is uh, the poster a callback to part two, uh, in the trivia, it says, Throughout the film, Sydney can be seen wearing the Greek letters around her neck that were given to her by her boyfriend, Derek, in Scream 2 shortly before he was killed. Oh, really? I didn't even notice that. Neither did I, so that's kind of fun. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, I guess Sid has given up acting because we see that she uh, she's working remotely before it was cool to work remotely uh, as a counselor. Man, like this woman goes through two different attacks. You know, she's probably under so much fucking scrutiny by the media because of what happened at Woodsboro and Windsor College that she's probably like, fuck it. I'm not going to be able to I'm not going to be able to have an acting career without (laughs) this shit following me around. No, I do have sympathy. I really like this scene because we just get like a kind of a quiet scene where she sits down to work and she works for the women's crisis counseling. And this woman calls talking about how her boyfriend hits her and you know, like all these movies have Sydney always getting called by Ghostface. So just to have a scene, Cordell, where she's on the phone, like helping someone. I don't know. I really thought it was like kind of a emotional, like effective scene. Yeah, I kind of like this. It's, it's kind of it's two different things. It's we see, like she's obviously in hiding that we get that because she's going by under a different name. She's going under the name Laura. Mm hmm. You know, and she, I mean, her house is, like, completely fucking armed with all, like, the anti, what, doesn't doesn't she, like, 
doesn't she click on like sit like three different locks at some point? Yeah. I mean, like this woman is really trying to stay stay hidden from the world. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna find out later that really the only two people that know where she's at is um her dad and Dewey. Dewey. Yep. So on the one hand, you know, she's it's nice to see her try to help people through a woman's crisis center. But at the same time, we're going to realize that she's not doing so well herself. Oh, yeah, no. Um, and we'll, like, that, that's what this movie kind of explores. Like, if, if her helping people through the Women's Crisis Center was to be, like, therapy to help her through her trauma, it's not really helping her that good. But, uh... Yeah, so we see Sid, yep, like basically, you know, working working through uh, the w- women's crisis counseling as Laura. And uh, we cut from that scene to uh, the scariest scene in the whole movie, which is Courtney Cox. <laughs> A close-up on those bangs, man. You know... I'm going to say this. There's a few times in this movie that Courtney Cox really doesn't look that bad. And there are other times where she looks terrible. It gets better for me. This opening shot of her in this auditorium looks just absolutely terrible. But then as the movie goes on, she, like, lets her hair down more. Terrible or terrifying? (laughs) Both. And you know what, Cordell? I consulted the girlfriend. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, why would she ever do this? And apparently, this is an actual hairstyle called micro bangs that was in fashion in the early 2000s. But uh, may it never, ever come into fashion ever again. (laughs) So no one told me life was going to be this way. Isn't that the theme to Friends? Yeah, it is. But, (laughs) uh, yeah, we went from Scream 2, where, in my opinion, Courtney Cox looked the best, to uh, she's looking rough in Scream 3. (laughs) Um, Courtney Cox, I feel like the most, like, as the Scream movies go on, like, she's trying her hardest to look you know, great, but it, you can tell that deep down, it's not, age is not, is going up against her. Well, when you get to Scream 4, she's had, like, all this plastic surgery. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's more plastic there than shale. By the time we get to Scream 5, it's like, I, I don't even know if Courtney can move her mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well... <laughs> Go back and listen to our screen review. I don't know if we touched on that. That was early days. We weren't we weren't as comfortable. Yeah. Now we're just like now we're just like whatever. Fuck it. Yeah, and I got fireball through me, so I'm gonna be going. I'm gonna be brutally honest in this movie. <laughs> so she's uh, Gail Weber. She's lecturing this. I think it's a college or something like that. And she's, like, talking about, you know, her experiences as a journalist. And there's this one guy in the audience who basically is, like, a heckler. And 
he's like, so you're saying we should like basically step on each other and kill each other for the story. And she kind of like plays it off and, you know, says metaphorically, yes. Um, well, she's walking out of this. Yeah. And then he goes like, well, tell me, Miss uh, Weathers, was it worth it? I'm thinking to myself, who the fuck is this guy? Like, I was expecting this guy to come back at some point. I don't know why. Like, I because they really focus on this guy. Yeah, he's just some rando. He never comes back or matters. <laughs> so uh, she's walking out of the auditorium. Someone comes up to her and is like, oh, the there's a guy from the police who wants to talk to you. And I think, you know, we're supposed to think it's Dewey. But uh, sure enough, it is not. It is McDreamy himself, Patrick Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey played as Mark Kincaid. As Detective and Kincaid. So Patrick Dempsey. Uh, What's he from, like ER or something like that? Well... He was in the 1985, well, his very first movie he was uncredited in, but he was in the 1985 movie The Stuff. Oh, he's um, Grey's Anatomy. That's what he's known for. Have you ever seen The Stuff, that killer yogurt film? No, but I want to. Yep, he's in that. He's in Can't Buy Me Love. Um... He played the exact same role in Thanksgiving, Cordell, which, again, you should check out, man. He's the he's the sheriff in that movie. He was the voice of Kenai and Brother Bear 2. I think he was just. Oh, he was people's sexiest man alive in 2023. So. Oh, yep. In 2023, he was in Thanksgiving. He's also in that movie Ferrari that's. Uh, coming out. Oh yeah, the Michael Mann movie. He was in Transformers: Dark of the Moon. I don't even remember him in that movie. I'd have to go back and watch that to figure out. He was in Freedom Riders. I've seen that movie. That's actually a good movie if you've ever seen that. Nope. Oh yeah, it's uh. It's based on a book about a teacher who takes a job at this school. It is, it's basically like one of those movies where uh, like the class is like unruly and it's like a, like it deals with like gang violence and stuff like that. OK, well, she she take this. Um, uh, Hil- the lead um, actress, the teacher, Hillary Swank. She takes over this. Uh, she takes over as teacher of this class, and she starts to kind of like bring the class together. Um, to, you know, trying to get the kids to look past their differences. And I haven't seen the movie in a while, so I'm not doing a great job at explaining it. But if you ever get a chance, if like if you ever find the movie out on DVD, definitely give it a watch. Okay, yeah, no, oh, sounds interesting. Yeah, I thought it was a really good film. Um, television. Yeah, Grey's Anatomy. 
McDreamy. Yeah, I'm not really... Other than some of the stuff that I just said, I don't think I've really seen a lot of stuff of Patrick Dempsey, and I'm not a Grey's Anatomy's guy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so he's uh, Detective Mark Kincaid, our lead cop in this movie. And uh, so he tells um, Gail that, you know, Cotton Weary's been murdered. And more importantly, he pulls out a photo and he tells her that a picture of a young Marine Prescott was left at the crime scene. And so basically, this is kind of like Gail's into the story. She's from now on, she's going to be like kind of working with Kincaid. And uh, so we all. I love his line here. I says, I'm showing you this because you're the Woodsboro aficionado. But I swear, if you tell the world this, I'm arresting you. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, I swear on my Pulitzer Prize that I'm going to win one day. Yeah. And we also cut back to uh, Sydney. She's watching the news and she hears about Cotton's death. And uh, obviously she's upset. And this is when we find out about Stab 3 with the subtitle Return to Woodsboro. And so we cut over to Hollywood, um, over to the studio where we see the big sign for Stab 3. And we uh, we see all these like studio execs and directors kind of talking on the set. And this is where we get introduced to... Uh, Director of Stab 3, Roman Bridger, played by Scott Foley, who you don't have to do it, Cordell. I got you because I looked this guy up. He has done jack shit besides Scream 3. (laughs) Oh, no, this guy's been in quite a bit. Uh, Actually, I mean, Scream 3, you know, and on television, he was in Scrubs. He was in House. He had a um, he had a spot on Law and Order. He was also on Grey's Anatomy, True Blood. Um, okay, all right, all right. I'm sorry, Scott. So fully fans. <laughs> Dawson's Creek. This guy's had a pretty, pretty. You know, and he's got something else coming out on TV that's uh, to be announced. Doesn't really say when it's coming up, but it says an upcoming series. So he's still. And the last film he was in was 2017 in a movie called Naked. Hmm. So, yeah, he's had a career. But not only are we introduced to Roman, but we're also introduced to another major player in the film, John Milton, played by Lance Hendrickson. Who needs no introduction? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at this guy's resume. Dude, this guy has been in fucking everything. Closing mm-hmm. Lights, Damien, Omen 2, Piranha 2, The Spawning, The Terminator. Yeah, Hunter, a- Aliens is his big one. Alien 3. Uh, He was in Super Mario Bros. <laughs> Wasn't he an AVP? Yes, he was, actually. Yeah. He was an AVP. He was in the Mangler 2. Which, I gotta say, Cordell, AVP 1 is a damn fun movie. Underrated. Really good. Fuck all the haters. He was, holy shit, he's been in a couple of the Pumpkinhead movies. Pumpkinhead's fun, dude. We should do it. 
he was in Hellraiser, Hellworld. Yep. Yeah, this guy. Yeah, this guy's been in everything. <laughs> Fucking Alone in the Dark too. Okay, that's where this guy should probably have retired from acting. <laughs> Holy shit. <clears throat> but um. Yeah, so uh, Roman, he's the director of Stab Free, and he's talking with all these studio heads, and uh, he's basically saying, like, you know, don't shut down my movie, basically. And Lance Hendrickson's Milton is like, you know, I've been making horror movies for 50 oh, years. Cool. He was on he was on two episodes of Tales from the Crypt as well. <laughs> yeah, he's Dude, been in everything, I, man. I am in shock that this guy's fucking. I am shocked, dude. At like the amount of shit this guy's been in. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a horror icon, horror action, sci-fi. It's not just horror; like he's done voice acting. He was in an episode of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Grey's Anatomy, Criminal Minds, uh, The Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, Transformers, NCIS. Yeah, no, he's, he's been in every, he's been in he was in uh, Tarzan, you know, the X Files. He was in that TV show Hannibal, which was kind of like the the show that introduced me to Mads Mikkelsen. He was in a Van Damme movie I like called Hard Target, really fun movie. All right, well, way to go for Lance Henriksen. That's a fucking career right there. Yeah, no, I, I like him in this movie. He's not in it enough, honestly. But what, what's really cool to me is there's a good cameo in this scene, too, Cordell. Did you catch it? The guy, uh, the one um, the one studio guy who's basically like, you know, the problem is movies and violence is uh, Roger Corman. Is it really? Yeah. That's awesome. Obviously, everyone <laughs> knows, everyone knows Roger Corman from New World Pictures. Yeah, no, the the one guy who has, like, one line, and he's basically like, you know, we, we have a big problem with movies and violence right now. That Yeah, that's yeah. Roger Corman. I like that. The Columbine happens, and so they have to sneak in that little bit about violence in movies. But I, oh, I'm, I'm just going to say it, Cordell. This whole movie is Wes Craven, like, making fun of Hollywood. But I like Roman's response. He's like, what, we quit making horror movies? All the psychos are going to, like, just pack up and quit? Come on, guys. He was your, mm-hmm. like, he was your goddamn idea. An ex-con with a trashy talk show? He must have pissed someone off. Mm-hmm. And you hear that, listeners? Horror movies do not make psycho people. So fuck like, those guys. I like I like Lance Hendrickson. He turns around and he's like, detective. There's no reason to assume that Cotton's death had anything to do with the this movie, do you? And it wasn't Kincaid, but his partner, who I'm not, I don't know his partner's name. Oh, I, I have it written down somewhere. Give me a sec. What the fuck is it? I love this guy. He's he's my favorite. Every line out of that guy's mouth is hilarious. Uh, what the fuck is his name? Ugh. Oh, no, he's not even on the Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Wait, give me a sec here. Uh, well, uh, it has to be. Is it this guy here? I think it's Wallace. Yeah, it has to be Wallace. But he's like, 
Yeah, he's it's Wallace. Movie, he's making a movie called Stab. He was stabbed. <laughs> yeah, every line out of Kincaid's partner's mouth, Cordell, is fucking funny to me. If you notice, throughout the movie, right? He always is, like, saying this, like, fucking sarcastic, like, shit. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he was making a movie called Stab. He was stabbed. <laughs> that's that's top detective work right there. So but uh, next scene we get introduced to our victims of the film. Yeah, so we cut to the cast of Stab Three, and they're kind of doing like you know the classic scream scene where they're like discussing who the killer could be. And uh, oh, I didn't write all these people down, but we have. We have uh, we have, have Tom Prince played by Matt Ke- uh, Kessler, Sarah Darling played by Jennifer McCarthy, Angelina Tyler, but um, who is played by Emily Mortimer. She's kind of the mousy one, right? Yep. Yeah. We, and then I think the one that we focus on the most is Jennifer Jolie, played by Parker Posey. And then, and then we have Tyson Fox, played by Dion Richmond. So I'm going to uh, quickly go through. I'm going to start with Matt Kessler. Um, screen three. Uh, lots of TV. Nothing sticks out. I mean, he was in the, uh, he was in Mr. Magoo. Oh, boy. If you like Mr. Magoo. Uh, Jennifer McCarthy. She is... She's big, right? I mean, I know the name, but I don't know. Uh, what she, she was actually Scream Three. She was in Scary Movie Three. Um. Oh, she defi- looks totally different now. What the fuck? Yeah, she's definitely she's had more of um. She's bigger oh. on she's bigger on TV than she was in the movies. Oh, she's uh that chick who's on the Masked Singer. Yep, uh, right. she was in, like she was in the original Baywatch. She was in Home Improvement. What's new, Scooby Doo? My name is Earl. She was on. She was a co-host on The View for a while. Wahlburgers. The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Okay, I'm done. Anyway, moving on. On to the next one, Cordell. On to Emily Mortimer. She, Emily Mortimer is not that bad looking. Um, wow, her filmography has its very own Wikipedia page. Um, Okay, besides Screen 3, I literally recognize none of these films. Oh, she Moving was in, on. Hold on, she was in The Pink Panther with uh, 
that 2006 remake of the Pink Panther. I vaguely remember it. Never and saw it. Pink Panther 2. She was in Shuttle Island. Oh, well, good for her. Was she the wife of uh, Brad Pitt? Yeah, or was she one of... And she was, uh, she, uh, what, cause two... I, give me a minute. I'm giving every person here their due looking through their filmography. Cordell is way nicer to all these actors in these shitty movies than I am. I'm always just like, eh, fuck this person. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, eh. But I like to give everyone their due. Um, <laughs> The only thing... She actually has a movie coming out pretty soon. Ah, good for her. It's a sequel to Paddington. Oh, okay. I've heard good things. Um, she was in the movie Mary Poppins Returns a couple years ago. So, I mean, she has a career here, but it's like not a lot of nothing I really recognize. Parker Posey. Wow, this woman's had a career. Um. Yeah, Parker Posey is uh needs no introduction. She's been in a ton of shit. She was in Coneheads. Dazed and Confused. Love that movie. Uh, Josie and the Pussycats. Blade Three. Yep. Superman Returns. Inside Out. Oh, that's not what I thought it was. I thought that meant the... Um... Oh, she was just in that um, recent horror movie this year, Bo is Afraid. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I will try to watch that before the end of the year, actually. See, I like to give these people their due because when I look at their filmography, there's always something that they've been in that I have at least heard of. And then last is Dion Richmond, who plays Trey or Tyson. Um, oh, good Lord. Um, okay, he played a young Eddie Murphy on Eddie Murphy Raw in 1987. Scream 3, not another teen movie. He was in Hatchet, the the first Hatchet film. Oh, no way. Is he that guy in Hatchet? Is he the friend? He's Marcus. Oh, no shit. Wow, I never even made that connection. Yeah, he's... <laughs> he was an FDR American badass. If you've never seen that movie, you need to check that out. Just to give you an idea, American FDR, American Badass, is like a comedy that spoofs the life of President Franklin Roosevelt. And um, when it gets to like World War II, like Hitler, Mussolini, Emperor Hirohito, they're all like werewolves. Oh, really? <laughs> and so you so you got like 
FDR flying in, flying into Europe on his wheelchair, dropping bombs on uh, werewolf Nazis. That um, sounds amazing. <laughs> it's fucking funny, dude. And then, as for television, he was on the Cosby Show. Uh, nothing else here I've seen. Well, he's but, great in Hatchet. Is what I I know him from. But uh, yeah, so that is that is our group of those are our victims. Tom, Sarah, Angelina, Jennifer, and Tyson. Mhm. So we uh yep. So we cut to them. They're sitting around the set, kind of doing the typical scream, like you know, who could the killer be, sort of thing. And uh, I think it's funny because, like, they talk about how, like, Tyson, he's playing the Randy replacement called Ricky, who works at the video (laughs) store. I love the line. Probably some psycho pissed off that killed Randy and stabbed, too. And uh, this is when we find out that basically Angelina Tyler, Emily Mortimer, she, like, won a nationwide contest to, uh, you know, be the new Sydney. Uh, which will come back later, so keep that fact in your mind, kids. <laughs> yeah, doesn't, uh, what is it, doesn't Jennifer McCarthy get, like, a line in at us saying something about sleeping with the director? <laughs> well, she gets a bunch of lines, and Parker Posey is amazing in this movie. I'm just going to say right now, she uh, she kind of steals the show. <laughs> yeah, Parker Posey actually pops up uh, when Gail walks in. Yeah, she's not in this scene. But um, we do get a funny little line when they're ba- she's like, I guess this is why Tori's spelling a date. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's awesome! You there? It's Cordell. Oh boy, technical difficulties. Can Hello? you hear me? Yeah, can you hear yeah, me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you yeah, just fine. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Hello? Hello? Wait, Cordell. I, yes, I hear you. Oh, okay, I hear you. Okay, we're all good. Yes, I hear you. Just yeah. keep talking. Okay, yeah, you didn't you didn't cut out or anything. Anyway, <clears throat> so Gail rolls up to set in her car, and she's wearing this, like, hideous yellow pantsuit, if Ooh. you noticed. And... Yeah, but I think not- it's intentional. Because when she walks in the set, this is when Jennifer Jolie pops up. And did you notice, Cordell, she's wearing a suit that's the same one that Gail wore in Scream 1? Yep, that's even a uh, that's even a line here uh, on the trivia. The green outfit worn by Parker Posey while on set is the same one worn by Courtney Cox in Scream all the sets for Stab 3 are replicas of the original since the sets were destroyed after Scream, after the original Scream wrapped. And uh, we get some, I gotta say, when Gail and Jennifer are on screen together, I love their, uh, their like, bitchy back and forth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it always cracks me up. I forget what she says exactly in the scene, but, uh, you know, Parker Posey is basically like, oh, I'm like your biggest fan. Like, I, uh, what did she say, Cordell? Do you remember? 
Yeah, to be fair, Jennifer is, like, just kind of, like, awestruck at this moment. And it's really, you know, Gail that kind of instigates the bitchiness between the two of them. Yeah, because she's like, uh, you know, it's so nice to be played by an actress of such a range or something like that. Yeah, so. I'm trying to find the uh, trying to find the quotes here. Yeah, so uh, Jennifer's like, I know we've never met and I know you never returned my phone call. But after getting into this project, I feel like I'm in your mind. And Gail goes, hmm, that would explain my constant headaches. Oh, yep, there, there it is. <laughs> and then she goes, you know, I'm sorry things didn't work out for 60 minutes, too. Total entertainment. That's a good fallback. And Gail goes. Sorry, things didn't work out for Brad Pitt, but being single, that's a good fallback. Oh. <laughs> and, and so Parker Posey's is like, well, it gives me more time for my work. After all, Gail Webbers, you're such a complex character. And Gail's like, and to be played by an actress with such depth and range. <laughs> oh, man, I'm, I'm fucking just these two like back and forth is hilarious to me. And uh, so this is when we uh, we also see uh, Dewey pops back up. And uh, we find out that uh, Dewey is on set for Stab 3 as a consultant. And uh, you kind of get the sense that like him and Jennifer are like sort of like flirting, if not like together a little bit. See, I never got the I, I never got that they were an item, but there was definitely some flirtatiousness going on there. Yeah, I think, I don't know, it's kind of, the movie sort of keeps it vague. It's kind of, I don't know what to think about their relationship, honestly. And this is where we also find out that Dewey and Gail are not, you know, on such good terms again either. Yeah, despite Gail literally jumping in the ambulance of Dewey last time. Um, well, yeah, they're it's back gonna at odds. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come up in a gonna come up in a little bit like literally five scenes from now it's gonna come up sorry give me one second yeah so uh gail she's walking on set with dewey and uh yeah they're kind of like going back and forth like sniping at each other and uh, I love this one little funny, uh, funny part, because the guy who's playing Dewey in the movie, Tom Prince, he walks by and, you know, he's like, oh, Gail Weathers. It's the real Gail Weathers. <laughs> and uh, he's like, hey, I watch your show all the time. You're so right. Pop culture is the politics of the 21st century. <laughs> and then he's like, I love the story you did on me last month, crashing my car. Wow, that was powerful journalism. And Gail like gets kind of nervous. And he goes, I especially like how you implied it was caused by drinking and drugs and the whole tire blowout was fake. That was great. <laughs> and then he walks away and he's like, oh, wait, are you parked in the lot? Because I should really check if no one's cut your brakes. Oh, shit. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. Like, I love that fucking like little, you know, like Hollywood sort of. uh 
I'm not gonna lie, I feel bad for Gail in this movie. It's like, yeah, she writes books and everything, but it seems like everybody's coming at her. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Gail and Dewey are talking, and um, you know, Dewey basically is like, yeah, like you know, I have no time for you now, Gail. But you can tell Dewey's still like, you know, he still is in love with her. He's still pining for her. Yeah, he loves her, but he's like he. P- but we 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 just get the sense that Dewey's like ah you're just here for the story of another murder. Mhm. Well, uh, Milton he sees Gail on set and it's kind of funny because he calls out like Gail Weathers and she's like could I be more popular and he's like get off get her off the set no reporters. So uh so Gail gets kicked out of the studio and this is when we get our first uh kind of like egregious cameo because there's like a tour group going by. And as Gail walks out, who should pop up but uh, Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes as Jay and Silent Bob. And they get this funny <laughs> little bit where he's like, hey, Silent Bob, I think that's a chick from, you know, TV, Connie fucking Chang. Hey, Connie, how's it going? And Gail flips him off. I don't know. Do you think that's funny, Gordo? <laughs> oh, my God. I love that Connie fucking Chang. <laughs> I don't know. Do you like Kevin Smith? Let's digress for a second. I like Kevin Smith. I like, like I said, like he's he's behind that uh, Masters of the Universe show that I watch. You know, I, you know what? I'm gonna click on his name here just to see some of the shit that he's done. Cause I I do like Kevin Smith. They're, like he's done shit that I do enjoy. Um. Clerks, obviously everyone knows Clerks, Jane Silent Bob. He 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 was it when was he in that movie? Which movie? The two thousand ten film Cop Out with Bruce Willis and Tracy Morgan. Oh, he directed it. He directed that? Mm-hmm. I've heard it's terrible. I've never seen it. Oh, who said that? Uh, every, everyone I've ever heard talk about the movie. No. <laughs> really? <laughs> that movie's fucking funny, dude. I've you... never heard a single good thing about it. You you are literally the first person, Cordell, to tell me good about that movie. Well, you know what, motherfucker? Go find it and watch it. I'm sure I can find the Blu-ray for a dollar fifty. Okay, right here is acting roles. I was looking at something else. So it was acting roles. Clerks, Dogma. He was in... Oh, he had a cameo in Daredevil, the 2003 Ben Affleck version. Um, Superman Doomsday... I guess Kevin Smith and Bruce Willis almost like beat each other up on the set of Cop Out. <laughs> he had a he had a cameo in Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah I mean, he, you know, he he pops up and shit. He was a commander in The Rise of Skywalker. He's definitely been in a lot of shit, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he's big in with. Uh, 
all the various, um, you know, like nerdy sort of stuff. So mm, and Kevin yeah. Smith is, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I like, like his stuff. But. Yeah, but, but even here on his Wikipedia page, it says that he's the, he created the Masters of the Universe Revelation show. Which is yep. basically, which is basically, you know, like a sequel to the original He-Man uh, show from the 80s. Mm-hmm. So. But, yep, so we get a little Jay and Silent Bob cameo, which is pretty funny. Now, Jason Mews, a ham I'm not too familiar with. He basically only does, like, Kevin Smith stuff. Um, I'm looking at him. Screen 3. Dogma. He was in a 2006 horror movie called Feast. I've heard of that. Never seen it. Uh, what is that? Bitten. My big fat independent movie. <laughs> uh, he was in a comedy movie called Fanboys. Oh, I want to watch that actually. That's about like the Star Wars fans. Oh, then I need to see that. Then that seems like it'd be up my alley. Yeah, it's about, like, a bunch of, like, Star Wars fans who go to, like, break in the George Lucas's house or something like that. Uh, yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. I'm just not as familiar with him as I am Kevin Smith. But, uh, so we cut back to... We cut back to Sydney, and uh, I totally forgot about this scene, Cordell, but her dad comes back visiting her. Yep. And, uh... Yep, he, uh, her dad comes, and we kind of get the sense that, you know, he's worried about her. He wants her to come home or something. Yeah, he's basically like, you know, I miss you, like, come home. Like, you know, you're not helping yourself, just hiding away. And she's basically like, you know, like no one can find psychos can't kill what they can't find. But and yeah, uh, I think is one line is like you help people who don't even know your real name. And it kind of it shows like kind of the toll that like, OK, yeah, Sydney is safe. But, yeah, it kind of it isolates her from her family and friends and. You know, and that's the whole point of this movie, I guess, right? Is she has to, like, kind of get out of her isolation and face her fears. But, uh, honestly, Cordell, I was sort of surprised because she asked her dad about her mom. And, uh, he kind of gives, like, a non-answer pretty much, you know. But, uh, so we cut to Sydney asleep on her couch. And, dude, I forgot how... You notice how he also tries to, uh... How he also tries to like downplay uh, Cotton's murders, like, like it's not even connected to us. 
Yeah, I was like, yeah, I don't know, dude. It probably is connected. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you could understand why he wants to think it's not. Mm-hmm. But so we, uh, yeah, so we cut to Sydney who's asleep on her couch. And I honestly forgot how creepy the scene was, Cordell. Because what follows is basically a extended nightmare sequence of uh, Sid basically dreaming about her dead mom kind of like walking up to her house and being in the window. Yeah, the obligatory jump scale. I gotta say, Cordell, honest to God, not the shot of the mom walking up. That's a little creepy. But when she, like, looks up and her mom is just, like, there in the window, that's kind of creepy, dude. No, that is creepy. Like, that's creepy. That's fucking, like, if you woke up and there was this fucking, like, corpse woman in your window, like, I'd be freaked the fuck out. And, like, it kind of loses its creepiness when the mom starts talking, though. Because she starts saying some bullshit, like, you know, like, come to mommy or whatever. I don't know. And, uh, well, what this is, this is just so they can, this is all, this is just so they can get the stupid jump scare in. Yeah, so Sid walks up to the window and we think she's awake, but then Ghostface pops up and crashes through the window and surprise, surprise, it's all a dream. (laughs) Um, the one who's most scared about this is the poor dog. I know, right? Well, it's been like 15 plus minutes since we've had a kill. So we cut back to the studio now. We see uh, Jenny McCarthy, Sarah Darley, and she rolls up and she's got a bitching car. Did you notice that? She's got some fucking BMW convertible. Like, <laughs> I was like, damn, I want that. <laughs> so she uh, she walks in the studio and she's kind of wandering around, like, you know, asking for Roman, the director, and no one's answering her. Well, all of a sudden, Tyson pops out of a door with, like, some scissors through his head. But it's just a makeup test, and, you know, he's of some makeup guy. And so he tells her, you know, like, everyone's going home for the day. Well, she decides to hang around and wait for Roman, so she goes into his office. And uh, she's, like, picking up, he's got, like, some music video awards and uh, well, the phone rings and she drops it and like knocks the head off of it, which is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's Roman calling, you know, calling his office. And he's like, look, I'm sorry, I'm late. I'm stuck in traffic. Let's, uh, you know, why don't we talk about your character? And I thought this shit was hilarious, Cordell, <laughs> because she starts complaining to him. She's like, I'm only in two scenes, which is funny. But uh, then she's like, I have some serious issues with the character. <laughs> and I thought this was fucking funny because he's like, all right, what are they? <laughs> and she's like, you know, she goes on this long rant. She's like, uh, you know, I'm not happy that, you know, I have to die naked. I'm not happy. I'm only in two scenes. I'm not happy that I have like no character. She basically does this whole like this long rant. <laughs> and all Roman says is he's like. Okay, great. Let's go over your lines. 
Did you notice that? Yeah, who is she even supposed to be playing in the film? I think she's just supposed to be, you know, like the random, like, hot chick who gets killed. (laughs) Maybe like an opening kill, kind of like the Casey Becker? Well, no, because they talk about the opening kill was Cotton in the movie. And then he got killed in real life. Okay. See, I'm just trying to figure out who, like, each of these people is supposed to be. But, um... Like, Tom Prince is supposed to be playing, like, a version of Dewey. Yeah, so Tom Prince is Dewey. Tyson is Ricky. She's Candy. I don't know who Candy is. Poco. Uh, I think Candy's just kind of play a uh, play on Casey. Yeah, Parker Posey obviously is playing Gail. And then Angelina Tyler is Sydney. But uh so she and Roman kind of go through her lines. And uh I do like when you know, she's like, the phone rings, and she gets this one line where she's like, my boyfriend just died. Why am I showering? But they're kind of, like, going through the script, and Roman goes, uh, he actually says her name. He's like, uh, you know, because I want, I forget what the fuck he says. But he says Sarah, and she does. She's a little slow to catch on Cordell because she's like, "That's not the line, Roman." He's like, "It is in my script," and she's like, "Is there another goddamn rewrite?" Which is kind of funny because this movie had like apparently a lot of rewrites. Well, it's also kind of funny because there's going to be a drop line later that there's like three different versions of the script out of the stab three floating around. And uh, so this is when, you know, the ghost face voice kicks in because uh, he's like, well, this is a whole new movie. And he's like, the next scene is Sarah gets skewered like a fucking pig. (laughs) So she, uh, you know, she runs out into the hallway. Well, she sees someone at the door. So she instead of going towards the door, she runs into the like, you know, costume shop and hides. But it turns out it's just a security guard. And uh, we get this really cool scene where there's a whole, like, two rows of ghost face costumes, and she's, like, hiding in them. And, of course, you know, Ghostface is one of the costumes behind her, and we kind of watch him, like, slide out. And uh, so he uh, he basically, like, takes the rack she's on and, like, shoves it into this room. And we get kind of all these funny moments where, like, she picks up a knife, but it's like a rubber knife. <laughs> and uh you know Ghostface attacks her she picks up like a machete and whacks him but it's you know it's cardboard basically and uh well he get, she grabs an axe and is like swinging it at Ghostface so he gets a hold of her and I thought this was cool kill was pretty cool Cordell because he like grabs her shoves her through the window in the door and then he just stabs her right in the back you know, I mean, you're not kidding. This guy is a backstabber. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he's a fucking, uh, he loves stabbing people in the back. And yeah, I mean, it could have been more bloody, but we do get like a close up of her face with like blood dripping down it. Uh, 
So yeah, we I'm going co- to be honest, this kill did nothing for me. Oh, not a fan? No, I'm not really a fan of the character either. Yeah, she's pretty throwaway. I do like the scene where, with all the ghost face outfits, though. That's pretty cool. Oh, no, I mean, that's a pretty... That's kind of a cool scene because, of course, you would have Ghostface, like, hiding in with the Ghostface costumes. But, uh, so we cut from that to Gail and Dewey, and they're sitting out at lunch at some cafe. And uh, this is when we we really get into the backstory. Like, Gail kind of tells Dewey, so after Scream 2, she actually stayed with Dewey till he was fully recovered and actually, like, I guess they dated for a while in Woodsboro, but she basically says like she couldn't stay in the small town life like every day in Woodsboro like felt like forever to her. And she got like these opportunities in like, you know, New York, 60 minutes to and. Uh, you know, it just didn't work out with Dewey. No, I like this scene. I want you want to talk like. So. Yeah, like what you were saying. So Dewey's kind of throwing shade at her again, like he did in part two. Like, oh, I bet you can't wait to... Because she tells him, like, I want to be clear. I'm only here because the police asked me to. He's like, why? Well, I did write the definitive book on the Woodsboro murders. Yeah, and I'm sure you just can't wait to write another one, can you? Well, what about you? What about me? You said you'd never leave Woods... You said you'd never leave Woodsboro. The only place that's real. And I liked, like, the shot of Dewey when she says that, and he kind of, like, shuffles uncomfortably. You notice that? Like, he's like, hey. Mm-hmm. And she goes, but now you're here. Not with me. And, yeah, this is where we find out that she took care of him until he was feeling better again. But she just could not stay in Woodsboro. It was like dog years. Mm-hmm. No, it is, it is a good scene, and you, you feel bad for both of them. And then, you know, she had the opportunity to almost become the next Diane Sawyer. But I like Dewey's line. He's like, what's wrong with being Gail Weathers? I liked her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, it's a good scene that, like, you know, really... Uh, Gail's really ambitious, but Dewey just likes her for who she is, you know? It's, uh, you know, it's sad, honestly. But you can tell that these people really do, you know, they care about each other and love each other. They just, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, they have, they need to work through their stuff. Uh, but, but then... Uh, decides that he needs to well no actually before that he confides to gail that somebody is looking for sydney yeah so he tells her that two months ago someone like you know phoned the cops in woodsboro and tried to like get some info on where sydney was and they wouldn't tell her and then uh they broke into the police station trying to get sydney's file but dewey uh took it out beforehand so you know somebody is trying to figure out where Sydney is. Well, uh, just as Dewey tells her that, he gets a page from Jennifer, you know, to basically go to her side. And uh, so Gail follows him 
And uh, they go up to, like, Jennifer's house, which I guess is up in, like, the Hollywood Hills, I think. Like, it's up on some, like, you know, elevated place. And uh, Gale follows Dewey, and I like how he's like, hey, by the way, you left your motor running. (laughs) And uh, this is kind of funny, because Jennifer, she's, like, chain-smoking... And uh, this is when we get introduced to her bodyguard, uh, Stone, yeah. Patrick Warburton. I don't like, well, no, it's not, Patrick Warburton's okay, but I do not like the character of Stone. Oh, no, he's an asshole. <laughs> but, uh, Listen, Patrick, Dewdrop. Patrick Warburton, I do like this guy. Um, and I've actually seen him in a lot of stuff. I just know him as Kronk. Oh, yeah. He he did the voice of Kronk. He actually did a lot of voice. He actually did a lot of, like, Disney and kids-related media. Oh, um, really? Oh, yeah. Like, in 2000, he did the voice of Buzz Lightyear on the, the movie Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, which kicked off an entire uh, TV show. Uh, I think you said he was Kronk. He was in Men in Black 2. Um, the Disney film Home on the Range, Chicken Little. Okay. Kronk's New Groove. He was, uh, he, uh, the animated film Hoodwinked. Oh, I love Hoodwinked, actually. Hoodwinked is a fun movie. (laughs) That movie's so Um, much fun. He was in the Disney movie Sky High, um, Open Season, Underdog, that 2007 superhero dog movie, uh, Space Chimps, which I've seen. That's a good movie. B-movie. Yeah, this dude has been... He was in Hoodwink, too. This guy's done a lot of fucking kid stuff he was in ted okay uh look and see uh he was in the 2016 christmas horror movie better watch out i've heard good things about that movie actually it's kind of like a subversion of home alone And then his most recent project was a animated adult science fiction movie called Venture Bros. I've heard good things. I've heard some good things about it, too. I want to see Venture Bros. It looks funny. Um, and then, of course, you know, a bunch of. What? Oh my goodness, he would he did the voice of that. Of what? I'm looking at his television stuff here. You know, Buzz Lightyear Star Command, Family Guy. Um He had a couple of voice in a, the animated show for Disney's Hercules, The Twilight Zone, Malcolm in the Middle. So he's got quite a bit of stuff. 
All right. I feel like we've been, you know, sucking Patrick Warburton's dick for like five minutes now. What are we even yeah. talking about here? <laughs> uh, to be honest, out of everybody on this, he's been in the most stuff that I've seen and liked. No, he's he's a good guy and he's funny. He's got that voice, you know. He's he's got an iconic uh, iconic voice. Dude, his role as Kronk is fucking hilarious. Oh, I love the Emperor's New Groove. It might be oh, my yeah. favorite Disney it's movie. All coming together. <laughs> when he uh, all right, we're really digressing now. But the whole scene when he takes over for the chef. <laughs> yes. That shit, and like the llama and Yzma are like going back and forth with him. Oh, that shit's fucking funny. Anyway, so uh, he's the uh poison, the poison for Cusco. The poison specifically chosen for Cusco. Cusco's poison. <laughs> anyway, so he's uh he's Jen's bodyguard stone. And uh, I love Parker Posey because she's like freaking the fuck out. And uh, we, this is when we find out that the people are dying in the order that they die in the movie. And uh, Gail is very outraged to learn that the next person who dies in the script is uh, Gail Weathers. <laughs> well, yeah, now Ghostface has two options. He can kill the actual Gail Weathers. Or he can kill Parker Posey's character. <laughs> Well, uh, so Dewey and Gail leave, and I love we get this little shot where Parker Posey just, like, jumps into fucking Patrick Warburton's arms. <laughs> that was kind of funny. And uh, we find out Dewey is, like, he's, like, living in a trailer next to her house. I don't know if it's his trailer or if it's her trailer. Or... I don't I don't get it, but... um. That's where Dewey's been shacked up this whole time. And uh, so we cut back to the crime scene now. And uh, we see uh, that another photo of Marine was left there. And uh, so we cut. The cops are swarming the place. And we find out that Stab 3 has officially been, like, shut down by the studio. Which makes sense when one of your actors has been, you know, brutally butchered. (laughs) Poor Roman, he's like he's all dejected. Yeah, he so he's complaining to Jennifer and Dewey, you know, he's basically like, you know, this is my one shot. Well, the cops show up, and uh, they're like, well, you know, Roman, uh, you know, Sarah Darling's uh, said, you know, she, the records show you called her to tell her to come here to the studio, and her roommate says she recognized your voice. So you got to come down to the station with us. And I love Wallace, the, you know, the sidekick cop, because he's like, this is the part of the movie where you come to the station with us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Roman's basically like, no, I didn't fucking make those calls. Like, <laughs> and he's like, well, Sarah Darling says you did. So, you know, we're supposed to suspect Roman at this point. And uh, so he gets taken away by the cops. Well, uh, and uh, we do get the funny line from Jennifer at this point where she's I think this is when she's like, you know, remind me not to sleep with him again. (laughs) And uh, so we cut back to Sydney and she's, uh, you know, she's uh, sitting in her house at night and she gets a call. And, uh, you know, she's like, this is Laura with the California Women's Crisis Counseling. And it's this woman who's like, oh, my God, Laura. Like, I've killed somebody. And she's like, all right, well, the person you need to be talking to is the police. 
And the woman on the other end of the phone is like, no, the person I need to be talking to is you, Laura. And uh, this is when the voice, you know, the voice turns in the ghost face and he's, you know, Sydney's like freaking the fuck out. And she she looks down and she realizes that the person's calling her not on her work number. It's calling on like her actual home line. So Ghostface has her phone number. And so Ghostface tells her, you know, turn on the news. And uh, she turns on the news channel and is talking about, you know, Stab 3 has been shut down due to the, the murder of Sarah Darling. And I this line is fucking cool because Ghostface is like, do you think it's over, Sydney? And uh, nothing on any of that, Cordell. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I do wonder. Aren't they gonna give like some lip service to how he got her number? Yeah, I don't think that ever gets solved in this movie. Actually, I don't know how he got her number. Doesn't uh, unless like Roman like stole Dewey's phone at some point or something. I don't know. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, uh. Yeah, so she grabs a gun and. But it's just a phone call. There's nobody there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, she's been found out. So we cut to, uh, back to Jennifer's place and she kind of has the cast there, I guess, to, like, drink their sorrows away and. More in the fact that Stab 3 has been shut down, you know, like Tom's sitting there on the couch smoking and reading pages of the script before ripping it up. And uh, so this line fucking cracked me up because Tom's like, you know, talking about like, you know, scene 42, Marine's murder. And Angelina, she's like, you know, stop it, you're scaring me. And she kind of walks off and uh, Tom's like, you know. I bet she stepped on every other woman in the way to get that Sydney Prescott role. She just stepped over all on all their heads to get it. And Jennifer's like, so you asked her out and she said no. And he's like, that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> um, so, you know, so Dewey, we, we see Stone. He's walking around the property kind of like, in, you know, making sure everything's secure. And uh, Dewey's kind of walking with Jennifer. Well, Gail, she rolls up to the house and she starts kind of like, you know, snooping around the outside of the house. Well, she overhears Dewey talking with Jennifer about her. And, you know, at first Dewey's kind of like, you know, well, Gail's pretty selfish. She only cares about herself. But then he sits down with Jennifer and he's like, well, she actually has like, you know, a sensitive side and she's really a dreamer. And, uh. But then Jennifer's, uh, you know, like basically reminds Dewey, like, you know, Gail, uh, Gail is pretty self-centered as well. Well, just then Stone pops up and he grabs Gail and drags her inside. And he's like, we already have one Gail Weathers. We don't need another. Yeah, we did. We kind of glossed over it, but there was a scene previously between Stone and Dewey where... Dewey was trying to give him advice on, like, you know, protecting the girls. And Stone was an asshole to him, calling him, like, dewdrop and everything. Yeah, and Stone is like, you know, I'm a professional celebrity bodyguard. My resume includes, like, uh, I forget who he says, like, 
Angelina Jolie or something. And he's like, you're just a small town cop who's a failure, basically. Your resume reads like an obituary. Yeah, at that point, I probably would have turned around and fucking clocked this dude. (laughs) But uh, so Gail shows up and she and Dewey kind of go off to talk. And this is when we find out that the cops released Roman because they couldn't actually track the calls to his cell phone. Turns out his cell phone was cloned. So Roman Mm. Roman's an (laughs) I know. Right. So Roman's innocent, apparently. And uh, so Gail and Dewey, they're kind of going over the photos of Marine. Well, Dewey earlier, he was looking at a photo of Jennifer taken in front of the studio. I like talking. I like the line. He's like, if I knew how, it's like, if I knew how psycho people thought, I would like. What what's the line he says? Something about like. Oh, I know like, what you're talking about. Yeah, thinking like psychos. Like, if I knew how a psycho would think, I would think like a psycho. Yeah, I'm looking. Uh... Yeah, I don't, yeah, he says something along those lines. Yeah, I'll find the line quickly. <laughs> but, uh, no, I really do like that line, though. But, yeah, so uh, Gail and Dewey, they're looking at the photos of Marine, and they realize that the one photo of Marine was taken at the same, uh, same spot that the one Jennifer publicity stunt uh, photo was taken, which means that, you know, Marine... She was in Hollywood at the uh, the studio. Yeah, I do like that line where his eyes get wide and he like rips the photo back and looks at it. And so uh, we do get a really cool a cool line here because Dewey and Gail realize this and Dewey goes, "All right, I need to go make some calls." And we no, cut. No, that's not the funniest line. The funniest line is when he looks at the photo and Gail's like, what? He goes, Jennifer. Jennifer. (laughs) I love how, like, jealous and salty Gail gets whenever he brings up Jennifer. (laughs) Yeah, it is really funny. The whole, like, kind of uh, competition for Dewey's affection. Because I do think Jennifer is, like, into Dewey. I get that sense, don't you? Yes. Like, like I don't think she's not into Dewey. I don't know. It's it's kind of weird. Je- Jennifer's character is a strange one. But, uh, so Dewey goes, oh, shit, you know, I need to go make some calls. So we cut to Stone, who's kind of walking into Dewey's trailer. And uh, he gets a phone call from Dewey. And uh, this is when Stone really turns out to be a fucking asshole because he's like going through Dewey's drawers. He steals some like quarters from Dewey. Like, you know, he's looking at Dewey's pictures of him and Gail. And uh, Stone really is a dickhead because Dewey's like, you know, get back to the house and protect Jennifer. Like, you know, we need you. And uh, Stone's like, I thought I told you not to give me any orders, Dewdrop. 
and Dewey's like, well, what are you doing in my trailer? And Stone's a real dick, Cordell, because Stone's like, I'm just checking it out because, you know, maybe the killer's in here waiting to slice you up like you did your sister. Oh, my goodness. And I was like, damn. If there was ever reason to punch this fucker, that would have that was the line. Well, Stone gets what what's coming to him because Dewey goes, what did you say? That makes me really angry. And uh, Ghostface pops out from like a closet or something. And he stabs Stone right in the fucking back. Again, Cordell, someone is stabbed in the back. <laughs> I, di- I did like I did like the the Dewey on the phone. He's like, what did you say? I can't believe you'd say that. <laughs> that makes me angry. Well, uh, you know, Stone's a big guy, so he's not going down from just a knife in the back. Oh, he turns around and he's like struggling with Ghostface. But uh, Ghostface, he basically slams Stone into the like cabinet, which puts the knife fervor in his back. And uh, then Ghostface picks up the frying pan and he uh, <coughs> he gives Stone a couple whacks on the head. So, uh, you know, Ghostface, he he does his frying pan foo. (laughs) Yeah, Ghostface takes a beating in this movie. Yeah, this movie, Ghostface, should be really easy to identify because he's the guy with the face covered in bruises. Well, I hate to say this, but they do not have the quote on, they do not have the quote on here. Yeah, I did a quick search for it, too, but I, I think the listeners understood what we were getting yeah, at. Yeah, he basically says something to the effect of, yeah, you know, if I knew how serial, if how psycho killers thought, I wouldn't I be thinking like a psycho killer? <laughs> but, um... So Stone is dead. Um, So Gale and Dewey, they walk back into the living room, and they're like, oh, shit, where the hell is everybody? And uh, we get kind of like this funny little sequence where Dewey uh, Dewey pulls out his gun and like people keep walking into the room and he keeps like getting scared and Dewey pointing his gun is, at like, him. Ready. He is so ready to like just bust someone with with a bullet like <laughs> he is twitching. So everyone kind of walks back into the room, you know, Tom, Angelina, Tyson, Jennifer. Well, Dewey's basically like. Uh, you know, all right, everyone stay calm. Well, they look out the front door and Stone staggers, staggers in with he's a knife like, in his back. He's like, you drop. <laughs> and so he collapses dead on the ground. Well, Dewey runs out, checks his pulse and Stone is dead. So Dewey comes back in. He's like, you know, everyone inside, everyone stay calm. Well, just then Ghostface cuts the lights and everyone freaks the fuck out. So, so then we get, uh, you know, they all run outside by the pool and uh, everyone's phone starts ringing or one person's phone starts ringing and they can't tell who it is. But I think it's this was a little confusing to me because it's just Ghostface is sending a fax instead. Yes. <laughs> so they all run back inside and, uh, you know, Jennifer's reading this uh, page that's coming from the fax. It's a script page that's basically describing their situation you know like if all the survivors huddled in the house 
you know, who, uh, who will survive, you know, Tyler, Angelina, Jennifer, Dewey, Gail, and then another page comes up and it's like the killer will spare only one of them, dot, dot, dot. And, uh, the killer is waiting outside to pick them off. And Dewey's like, you know, everyone get outside. The killer's just saying that because he's inside the house and they have this little, like, argument. But, uh, the last facts ends with, like, you know, the killer will only spare dot, dot, dot. So Dewey gets everyone in outside. Well, uh, uh, what's the guy's name, Cordell? Uh, Tom? Tom, he basically is like, I gotta know what the last fact says. So he runs back inside. Um, and he's trying to read it. So he, uh, he runs into the kitchen and he pulls out a lighter and, uh, flicks it open and he flicks it open and reads the line and it goes, the killer will only spare the person who can smell the gas. (laughs) And boy, what follows is a big fucking explosion. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so the house fucking blows up and there goes Tom. Well, everyone else, they all fucking jump over the the fence in the back. Still not as impressive as the house from Friday the 13th 7. No, no, it's it wasn't as impressive as that, I got to admit. No, because watch Friday the 13th 7, that house is there and then like in a millisecond it's just fucking gone. <laughs> and yet somehow Jason Voorhees survives it with like not even a scratch. <laughs> yeah, he was in the basement. That's true. But, uh, yeah, so Dewey and Gail and Jennifer, they're all, like, roll down the hill. And, you know, Dewey's all kind of beat up. Well, he, uh, he looks down the hill at the car, and Gail pops up. And, you know, she's like, oh, hey, Dewey. Well, Ghostface, he pops up from behind the car towards Gail. Well, Dewey, he's a crack shot. Because he pulls out his fucking revolver. And did you notice this, Cordell? He, like, plugs Ghostface, like, four times in the chest. Oh, yeah, he gets him good. <laughs> well, Ghostface goes down, and he fucking rolls under the car. So, uh, so Dewey runs down the hill to Gale. And, uh, you know, they're looking for Ghostface, but he's basically escaped. I guess he rolled under the car and just took off. Well, uh, <laughs> this line fucking... This next scene cracks me up so hard because Dewey and Gale, they're, you know, they're kind of looking at each other. They have like a little romantic moment. They go in for the kiss, but they get interrupted by Jennifer who runs up and she has this like this bitchy fucking rant at Dewey where she's like, Dewey, you're supposed to protect me. (laughs) She clocks Dewey. Yeah, she's like, who? She's like, who gave you a place to say, who are you supposed to be protecting? And Dewey's like, Jennifer, calm down. And so she clocks Dewey. Well, Gail fucking clocks her. And I love how Parker Posey delivers this. She's like, my lawyer liked that. Gail's like, not as much as I did. (laughs) Yeah, this is the one screen movie where... Uh, Gail does not get bitch slapped. No, Gail's the one doing it. <laughs> well, then they see Angelina coming down the road, and poor Angelina, she's traumatized. I feel bad for this girl. 
Yeah, she's like, uh, she's like, she's, Tom was in the house. Like, she's traumatized, dude. And all these but, three can do is just kind of look at her like, maybe she's the killer. Because at this point, we're going to get a couple times where we're supposed to think that Angelina is the killer. So, to kind of get into trivia, I don't know if we want to get into this yet, Cordell. Did you do any reading on, like, the fan theories about that? No, I did okay. not. Uh, do we want to get into that now or later? Um, is it going to spoil who the killer is? Yes, but I already did that earlier. No, you didn't. I definitely said it in one. All right, well, we'll talk about it later. But yeah, so Angelina runs down. And yeah, like you said, they're kind of suspicious of her. Well, they uh, so they cut back to the police station and Kincaid, he's kind of like fed up with Dewey and Gale. You get that sense because he's basically like, you know, I want to talk to Sidney Prescott. Where the fuck is she? Because the killer dropped a, another photo of Marine under the car. But this time he left another message. Yeah, so on the back of the killer. And uh, so we get this little moment where Kincaid is basically like, you know, well, Sydney thought it was Cotton Weary at first. Who's to say she wasn't wrong again? Because Dewey and Gale are like, well, we know who killed Marine. It was Billy and Stu. And Kincaid's like, well, how do we know Sydney was telling the truth? And, you know, Dewey, Dewey's kind of like protective of Sydney. He's well, like, well, this I has mean, nothing to do with Sydney. Like, considering everything Sydney's been through, duh. Yeah, no, but, it's totally understandable. But to be fair, I mean, Sydney pretty soon is even going to kind of look at Dewey like, why didn't you tell me about any of this, Dewey? So, yeah, so she, so Gail was like, well, we know who killed Marine Prescott. It was Billy and Stu. And then, like you said, uh, Kincaid's like, well, Sydney Prescott got it wrong before. She thought Cotton killed her mom and Cotton was innocent. Maybe there was a third killer. And Dewey, he's like, if there was a third killer, Sydney doesn't know about it. Well, finally, this is where Kincaid says, look, you either get me Sydney Prescott or I'm going to charge you with obstruction of justice and interfering with a police investigation. Yeah, so, we, we kind of get like the Kincaid Dewey like showdown, like they get all up in each other's business. And I like Gail's line where she's like, let's not compare calibers. <laughs> so um, Dewey, he uh, he goes to the lobby and he tries to leave a message for Sydney. I guess it's like the fifth. Uh, the fifth. um message he's tried to leave for her uh, well before that no we also uh i like king kate has a line where he's like i gotta go to the press and explain why there's a dead bodyguard and three dead celebrities and then his mm-hmm. partner comes in and says a very pissed off mayor as well yeah well 
so Dewey goes out and he tries to call Sydney. And I, I like the kind of framing of the shot because we see Dewey in the foreground trying to call her. And we see Sid walk in in the background and Dewey turns around and, you know, the music swells and, um, you know, Dewey and Sid reunite. And this is when Sidney tells Dewey, you know, the killer called me and found me, so I'm not safe there. So I might as well come down here. You notice how when she's asking him if she's if he's OK and then she's like, is she OK? Ah, you know, Gail would take a direct hit. <laughs> so Dewey comes back and he's like, you know, Kincaid, there's someone I'd like you to meet, Sidney Prescott. And uh, so Sidney, Kincaid, and Gail and Dewey, they're, they all basically are like kind of talking about the case. It's kind of funny because did you notice like the awkward like reunion Sidney has with Gail? Yeah, like they're kind of friends now, but not really. Like they kind of have to take a minute. But, you know, you're still a bitch because you wrote books about me. (laughs) So they're, uh, you know, they're kind of talking about, you know, who could the killer be? And um, Sydney basically is like, why didn't you tell me about the pictures of my mom? And so she says, uh, she tells Kincaid and Dewey and all them, she's like, I want to see where these photos were taken. So they all, uh, they all go over to the studio. And, uh, yeah, they roll up to the studio. And so Kincaid tells his partner, you know, he's going to go, uh, I forget what the fuck he's going to go do. He's going to go like, studio execs about those photos sure i know yeah. you're gonna be. you're gonna go get you're gonna go get her some uh flowers and candy <laughs> so uh conveniently enough cordell old kincaid he drives off mm. well uh this is when uh, Wes Craven and uh, Kevin Williamson and all those realized that they totally fucked up in Scream 2 because uh, very literally Deus Ex Machina pops out of a trailer. Oh, be nice. I, th- there's no defending this, dude. There is no defending this. I actually like this scene. Yeah, but it's lazy. It's lazy storytelling. Yeah, Come on, Cordell. It's lazy, but... You need somebody to give the horror movie rules, and I'm just happy to see Jamie Kennedy again. No, I'm I'm happy to see Jamie Kennedy. Don't get me wrong. I, I like I like seeing him, but uh, Sydney and them are literally like walking across the studio when out of this like random trailer, literally out of nowhere, yeah, this chick I, pops out. I, I did wonder about this. I, it's like, wow, was she just waiting there hoping to run into Dewey? <laughs> she literally pops out of nowhere. She's so, like, so we, so they get to the studio and Sydney has a line. She's like, I can't believe my mom never mentioned any of this. Well, all of a sudden, out behind this trailer, this door opens on this trailer behind them. This good, young woman pops out and yells, "Dewey!" And they all kind of jump and they're like, "Oh my God, Martha, Sydney!" <laughs> Well, the cops come running up with, along with, um, uh, 
Wallace. And Martha gets this funny line. She's like, don't shoot. I'm only 17. (laughs) And uh, Sydney and I'm like, it's okay. We know her. And Gail's like, we do. And I love Gail's line here. She leans over to Sydney, says, tell me that's his ex-girlfriend. I'll shoot myself. (laughs) And so we find out that this is uh, Martha Meeks, uh, Randy's sister, played by Heather Matazir. Matarazzo, who she did come, she, yeah, there was the same person came back in Scream 5, right? Yep, she did have the cameo in Scream 5. Okay, and this actress, um, Heather, she, okay, so she was in Scream 3, she was in The Princess Diaries, Devil's Advocate, uh, she was in Hostel Part 2. Um, mm, never see. I, I haven't seen any of those, so I can't speak to that. But you haven't seen. Well, I haven't seen any of the Hostel movies, but I am aware of what Hostel. It's an oh yeah, Hostel is an Eli Eli Roth franchise. Yeah, it's about the kids getting like tortured over in Czechoslovakia or something like that. Hmm. Oh shit. Um that's that's scary. What? I I had just accidentally like kinda went past her uh personal life uh thing here on uh her Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. Had the matter Matarazzo uh, was scheduled to attend a meeting on the 15th floor of the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. Jesus Christ. Yep, but she overslept. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, wasn't there another comedian that did that? Uh, one of the guys behind Family Guy was supposed to be on a flight that hit the trade center but he overslept yeah the uh seth mcfarlane i think was supposed to be on the one flight crazy shit that's crazy when you read about shit like that yeah it's just like um did we talk about this on the show there someone else's um the fuck was it someone's like wife was on one of the flights in 9-11 I forget who the fuck the celebrity was. But she oh, died like a year after he died. I, I have no idea who that is, but I, yeah, that's there's a lot of like crazy weird coincident type things. I like do that. know that on nine eleven, um this famous like real this uh, famous like T V news anchor, Barbara Olson, was on one of the flights. Her husband, Ted Olson, was, I think, a member of Congress or something. Really? Um, That's crazy. Okay, I don't know what this is, but this looks like a a documentary, but I'm going to have to find this and just watch it. 
But Heather was also in a documentary called Queer for Fear, the history of queer horror. Oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, I'm reading about this quickly. So basically, okay, so basically it's a, it's a documentary about, like, LGBTQ representation in the horror genre. That Seems kind interesting. Of, uh, there's two episodes. I'll have to check that but, out. But uh, yeah. So anyway, she pops out, and yeah, I mean, this is the the whole point of the scene is they have to bring Randy back from the dead via videotape. <laughs> I do like the. I do like the, what it says on the tape, though, like Horror Trilogy 101. <laughs> yeah. And so they uh, they go into this, like, trailer and put on this VHS tape. And we get Jamie Kennedy back. And the whole point is that I guess this is supposed to take place before he got killed in Scream 2. So we get all these, like, kind of jokes for his roommates, like, banging on the door. <laughs> He's I like, this is my room, too. I love that. It's like... 15 minutes, Paul. I'm leaving my legacy. Bang, 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 bang. 15 minutes, Paul. Damn. And we get this whole little, like, joke where he's like, if you're watching this, it means I regret my uh, decision to lose my virginity. Yeah, he's like, if you're watching this tape, then it is as I feared I did not survive these murders at Windsor College. And that losing my virginity to Karen Kolchek was not a good idea. Karen Kolchek? Yes, Karen Kolchek. Creepy Karen, shut up. <laughs> yeah, we, we get that little fucking like stupid. He's talking to Dewey, even She's though. A sweet girl, okay? We were putting away movies one night in the porno section, and you know, shit happens. Shit happens. <laughs> but, at uh. Least, at least we can, like, be happy that Randy did not die a virgin. No, we can. But, uh. So Randy gives us the rules for the trilogy. And uh, he's like, if another killer pops up, it might just be another sequel, in which case the sequel rules still apply. But he goes, uh, you know, if uh, you have an unexpected backstory and preponderance of exposition, you're in the final act of a trilogy. It's rare in the horror genre, but it does happen. And so here we go, Cordell. The three rules of the horror trilogy are as follows. Rule number one, the killer is superhuman and can take all sorts of abuse. Yep. Uh, Rule number two, anyone can die, including you, Sidney. (laughs) I like his line. He's like, it could be fucking Reservoir Dogs before this shit's over. (laughs) And rule number... I like when he's talking about, like, uh, the... uh, Responderance of exposition and everything with trilogies, and he like name drops Godfather Three and Return of the Jedi as um, examples, which you know I've already stated I like Return of the Jedi, but isn't Godfather Three like considered one of the worst movies? Yeah, Godfather Three is uh, universally pretty panned, honestly. 
Yeah, I've never seen the Godfather movies, but I was like, hmm, Godfather 3, I don't hear a lot of good shit about that. Yeah, you just want to watch 1 and 2, honestly, of the Godfather movies. So what's that second rule? Well, the second rule is anyone can die. Ah, yes. The second, uh, he's like, this means you, Sid, sorry, (laughs) you fucking Reservoir Dogs before this shit's over with. And then uh, rule number three is the past will come back to bite you in the ass. And I got the past. Forget it. The past is not at rest. And I got to say, Cordell, though, I think these rules are pretty crappy for the trilogy because it doesn't really apply in this movie. Well, I don't know. The third rule does. Yeah, well, the third rule does, but the first and second rules don't. It's not like Ghostface... Is no. any more impervious than he was in the first two movies? Yeah, the rule number one, he talks about shooting him won't work, stabbing him won't work. Either you're gonna have to decapitate him, cryogenically freeze him, or blow him up. And they don't do any of that by the end of this. So. Yeah, and rule number two just doesn't apply at all. The whole anyone can die because none of the main characters die. Well, we think for a moment that Sydney gets it, but. But, yeah. uh. But, you know, I think the scene, what's really striking about this scene for me is. So Randy says, so in closing off, you know, good luck, Godspeed. And for some of you, I'll see you soon. Because the rules say some of you aren't going to make it. I didn't. And right there at that moment, the camera cuts to Sydney. And mm. I swear you almost feel like Nev Campbell's trying to like she's trying to cry, but she can't exactly you know how like some people can cry on cue and others can't? Mm-hmm. Because it, it's very obvious in the scene that Sydney really misses Randy. I just yeah, no. don't. I just don't think it comes off as strong here as it should. I, I this scene should have been more powerful for Sydney, Gale, and Dewey to kind of revisit the coping of losing Randy in part two. Oh, I mean, I, I think it's a fun scene. I, it, well, it's a balance because you don't want it to just be them sad about Randy. You also, you, I mean, you know, the scene serve its, serves its purpose as like a fun callback to Randy. You know what I mean? I, I don't have an issue with the scene. I know I joked about it being do it deus ex machina, but um it is what it is. It's fun. It's fine. But uh, so they uh, they leave the trailer and, you know, they say goodbye to Marfa, who I guess <laughs> is just, you know, going to travel back to Woodsboro. <laughs> yeah, I love how she traveled all the way to fucking Hollywood to deliver a VHS tape. And she's like, OK, bye, Dewey. Be safe. Come visit us. <laughs> just to uh, just to hide in a trailer. <laughs> Um. Yeah. So they uh they decide to split up. 
And uh, so Gail and Jenna, so Gail, she decides to go to like these like archives to find out more about the photos. And uh, she gets jump scared because Jennifer decides to follow her. And Jennifer has this great thing where she's like, the killer wants to kill Gail. So if I'm with you, she'll get to kill the real Gail instead of me. She won't kill me. Make sense? No. You know, I play you as being somewhat smart and sane, which must be a stretch for you. <laughs> but uh, between these two is fucking great. Oh, yeah. So Gail can't get in. And uh, Jennifer's like, the real Gail Weathers would find a way. And she has, like, a studio ID that, like, gets her in. Yeah, that's not even fair. That's a fucking cheat. The real <laughs> Gail Weathers would figure out a way. Well, you're not the real Gail Weathers, bitch. I love when they're walking down these stairs. And did you notice, like, Jennifer keeps trying to go ahead of Gail. And Gail keeps, like, walking I in front of her. I scene when the camera's panning up the stairwell. Gail comes around the corner and fucking Jennifer, like, does, like, that quick head around the corner scene, kind of like in spy movies. Yeah, Parker Posey is fucking awesome in this movie. I love how she plays it. Yeah, she's acting like she's like a spy movie. All you're missing is that music that goes didn't, 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 didn't. (laughs) So the, they go down to the archives, and um, this is when we get our second cool, well, one of our multiple cool cameos, because the person love, running the archives. I love this cameo. I love this cameo so much. <laughs> we got Carrie Fisher of Star Wars fame, Princess Leia. But she's not playing Carrie Fisher in this. She's playing a washed up. B actress named Bianca Burnett. Do you have any trivia on this, Cordell? Is Carrie Fisher like friends with Wes Craven or anything uh, like that? Like, I did see something in here actually. Um, this wasn't originally uh, supposed to be uh, Carrie Fisher. This role of Bianca was actually offered to Jamie Lee Curtis. Really? That would have been cool. But she turned it down. Don't know why she turned it down, but she did. Well, this was still, I think, when Jamie Lee Curtis was kind of not not proud of her, like, horror days, you know? Oh, my God. Do you want to know who was considered for the role of Stephen Stone? Who? Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> that would have been fun. Can you imagine Stone Cold going up to Dewey? Listen here, buddy. The bottom line is, is I'm a professional celebrity bodyguard, and you're just a failed up, and you're just a failed up small town cop, and that's the bottom line, cause Stone Cold Steve Austin said so. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> so yeah, we we get this whole joke with Carrie Fisher where Jennifer and Gail are like, "You look exactly like." Yeah, but I'm not. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Are you? No. You look just like her. I get that a lot. I was up for the role of Princess Leia. Almost had it, too. Who gets it? The actress that sleeps with George Lucas. (laughs) And I... It's kind of like a fun little dig, because Carrie Fisher admitted in 
later interviews that she was very rowdy when they were making the Star Wars movies. Like, she did drugs, and she slept around a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like a fun, it's kind of fun to see her take that little dig at herself like that. Yeah, no, it is funny. Um, but she and, was like, uh, but I like Gail, she's like, I didn't mean to bring up a sore subject. Uh, they never do. <laughs> well, Gail tries to tell her that she's looking for information on Maureen Roberts and she's helping the police. And she goes, I work for the studio, not the police. Well, Gail tries to entice her with a, what is it, like a 50 or or $100 bill? It's 50 bucks, and she's like, well, would you work for the president? And she goes, I work for the president of the studio. And I like Jennifer. She's like, $50? What are you, working for Woodsboro High School? <laughs> and she pulls off, like, a fucking diamond ring and slaps it down. She's like, that's worth, like, $2,000. Now, are you going to help Gail Weathers or not? So they go to the archives and she's like, I have a respect for the B for the B level actress. I remember every face that comes through here. So if they're looking for Marine Roberts, they won't find her. But Rena Reynolds, they will. She hands them a folder and it they open up the folder and there's a promo still of uh Sydney's mom with under the name Rena Reynolds. And this is my favorite line of the fucking film. Uh, Jen gets this like smirk on her face. She goes, "Stage name, obviously." And Kenny Fisher goes, "You should talk, Judy Jurgenstern." <laughs> yeah, I did like that. Man, if my last name was Jurgenstern, I'd change my fucking name too. <laughs> So uh, so we cut up back up to the studio and we see like Dewey and uh, the other cop Wallace. They're kind of like standing outside and uh, we see Sid in the bathroom. Well, she uh, she looks in the mirror and she kind of hears a noise and she sees some like boots getting pulled up in the one stall. So she pulls out a can of mace. And she kicks open the stall, and who's inside but uh, Angelina Tyler. And she's holding, like, the ghost face mask, a ghost face costume. Wait, you know, she... uh, what? We, I think we just skipped uh, the big reve- one of the big reveals here. Um, but... When they were looking at uh, Sydney's mom's photos down there. What do we miss? Uh, uh, when Gail looks at all the movies that she's been in and Carrie Fisher drops the bombshell that those were uh, movies back in Milton's heyday. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, all, all the movies were made by John Milton, Lance Hendrickson. <laughs> and I, lo- I like how they get that light bulb sound effect and fucking both Gales go like, what? Mm-hmm. Oh shit! We almost like, yeah. It's a good thing I uh, we we didn't just we fixed that because that's gonna come up here pretty soon. <laughs> so 
So, uh, yeah, so Sydney's up in the bathroom and she finds Angelina in the stall. And Angelina, she's like, oh, my God, it's the real Sydney Prescott. What is she doing in the stall? Yeah, well, she's well, she's holding like a ghost face mask and costume and stuff. And Angelina tries to pass it off. You know, she's like, oh, since the movie shut down, I figured no one would care if I took some souvenirs because this is, you know, my only chance at Hollywood. And uh, she basically, like, is like, oh, my God, like, I just wanted to make you proud, Sydney, you know. Well, she walks out, but she leaves behind, like, a brush or something. I'm sorry, this is cringe. (laughs) The way she's, like, groveling at Sydney's feet. Well, Sydney picks up the brush and follows her. Well, she walks into the studio, and Sydney has like a deja vu moment because she walks right onto the sets of like her old house and Stu's house, pretty much. And um, so this is kind of a cool moment because, like, you know, the music swells up. I like when she goes into her old house or like the set of her house. And she goes upstairs to the recreation of a bedroom, and she has, like, the flashback to that moment when Billy climbed through a window in the first movie. And she remembers their conversation. Yeah, they replay the dialogue of, you know, like, uh, would you settle for a (laughs) PG-13? Yep. And, uh... Well, Sid's in her room kind of uh, remembering that stuff. Well, the door to her room sort of like closes by itself. And so she gets a little freaked out. So she goes over. She like pulls open the closet door and locks the, uh, you know, locks the door. Well, uh, the door kind of keeps moving on its own. So she backs up to the window. Well, out of fucking nowhere, Ghostface pops up smashes through the window and he pulls Sid out the window onto like this like catering table. <laughs> Dinner served, bitch. <laughs> and so uh so Sid and Ghostface they fight a little bit and he's kinda like chasing her through the sets. And uh so she runs back into the one house and uh runs up the stairs and did you notice Cordell they kind of recreated the attack from the first movie like he slams the knife into the front door just like he did in Scream 1 Yes and there's uh a, there's a lot of callbacks in this uh film to the first movie And so she ends up running up the stairs just like she did in Scream 1 and uh, she opens up this one door and it just kind of like opens up. There's no floor. It just like is a door to nowhere, basically. Well, uh, so she kind of climbs out there. Well, Ghostface runs up. He pops open that door. Well, Sydney's kind of like clinging to like the uh, scaffolding on the other end. Well, she grabs Ghostface and chucks his ass out the door. <laughs> but uh, it's all kind of pointless because he falls onto a bed that was underneath. Well, uh, so Sid, she climbs back through the door and kind of walks down the hall into this room. And, uh, turns out this room is like a recreation of her mom's birthday. And, uh, yeah, that, that's gotta be rough. 
like complete with you know the bloody body bag on the floor. Well, Sid walks in, and all of a sudden she starts hearing her mom's voice. We created the murder of your mother. You feel better? (laughs) Oh boy. And now this is a question I have for you, Cordell, about this scene specifically. Because this makes no logical sense. So she chucks Ghostface out the fucking set. So he's a level below her. How does Ghostface have time to run all the way back up and hide under the body bag? Or do you agree with me that I think in this scene, when Sid sees, you know, the body bag kind of like rise up, I think it's all in her head. I mean, what do you think? She, I mean, she is like having nightmares and hallucinating. You know what I mean? Like, it just it doesn't make sense to me that Ghostface is under the body bag in that room when like two seconds before Sydney threw him out the doorway. You know what I mean? I just like how when the body bag rises up, Ghostface gives himself a gives himself some, self away because she's like watching him and all you hear is <laughs> but uh but no I mean do you think the body bag specific do you think that's ghost face or do you think that's all in her head I think it's a hallucination that's what I think, too. I think after she throws Ghostface out the doorway, I think he just runs off, and then she hallucinates her mom. With pop sound and all. But, um... <clears throat> I'm sorry, I don't know why I tried to make that funny. I think this fireball is getting to me. <laughs> oh, no, listeners. It's almost two in the morning. We're rocking it. Are you fucking for real? Is it almost two? Yeah, we've been talking about Scream 3 for like two and a half hours. (laughs) Fuck yeah, let's keep going. All right, all right. So the lights come up, and uh, this is when basically I called this scene, Cordell, all of our suspects pop up, right? Because you got Kincaid, you got uh, Tyson, who's kind of vanished from the movie, and you have Angelina. They all run onto the set. And, uh, you know, uh, Dewey and Wallace, they run up, too. And Sid, of course, is like, you know, Ghostface, he's in the, you know, he was back there, Dewey. Well, Wallace and some cops go to investigate. And he's like, Kincaid, there's nobody up here. And so you kind of get the sense that they're, like, questioning if, like, Sidney is telling the truth or not. About there actually being anyone, any killer there. Well, see, I don't know, because I I don't ever get the sense that Kincaid thinks Sydney is responsible. Well, I don't think anyone thinks Sydney is responsible, but I think some people think she's making up that the uh, the killer was, you know, there on set. You know what I mean? So. <sighs> So uh, Sydney and Kincaid, they they head back to the police station and, you know, Kincaid's basically like, look, like 
we're going to put you under police custody, police protection, whatever it takes. Well, uh, so Dewey, Jennifer, and Gail, they go to see Milton because of what, uh, you know, Jennifer and Gail figured out about Milton was the guy behind all of the Rena Reynolds movies. So we cut to uh, Milton's office. And I got to say, Cordell, I love the fucking joke that he has a diving board outside his window. <laughs> I, I like – so we cut to fucking the office and – Roman Bridger pops back up and he's in there and he's like he's just bitching to Milton like they killed my movie they killed my cast why couldn't someone kill the cast to stab one or two huh nobody's ever gonna want to work with me Variety called me a pariah I don't even know what a pariah is (laughs) I like how Milton's like uh <laughs> Milton's like to him, he's like, it just adds to your mystique. And right away, Roman shifts his tone. He's like, you think it'll get me work? <laughs> and like he also has a line where he says, Hollywood is filled with small-time criminals whose careers are flourishing, but I'm not a criminal. Yes, I was questioned. So this is uh. when, this is when Dewey, Gale, and Jennifer bust in, and. They're like, like, well, uh, I was like, can I help you guys? Rena Reynolds and uh, Roman's like, Rena Reynolds. Who's Rena Reynolds? And uh, Milton like, quick, quickly, you know, <laughs> boots uh, Roman out the door, tells him to go home, and well, this is where we find out that it's Roman's birthday, apparently. Because yeah. Milton tells him, you know, go back, don't cut the cake without me. So I guess Milton is like the world's best boss, you know. He's like he's throwing Roman a fucking birthday party at his mansion, like. <laughs> yeah, like Johnny's like, oh Roman, I forgot it's your birthday. Yeah, look at me as if life isn't tragic enough. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Milton he kicks Roman out and. Do you kind of get the sense, Cordell? I thought it was in this movie, but I guess it's not actually in this movie. But I always got the sense that, like, Milton was kind of like a father figure to Roman. Yeah, it kind of comes off that way. Like, because later we're going to find out, like, you know, Roman was rejected by who his birth mom is. But I, I swear to God, every time I watch this movie, I swear there's, like, a dropped line about, like, Milton, like, you know, raising Roman or whatever, but... They don't actually say that, but it definitely kind of comes off that way, you know, like he's kind of like shepherding this kid, you know, like kind of guiding him, you know. Well, Dewey, Gill, and Jennifer, they start grilling Milton about Rena Reynolds. Well, first they say Maureen Prescott, and they're like, who? He's like, who? Rena Reynolds? You know how many people worked for me? How many actresses? Hundreds, thousands. Well, it's only when Dewey threatens to call Detective Kincaid that Milton really starts to spill the beans that he knew that he knows um, Rena Reynolds. She was a bit part in his movies. And we get this this awesome line by Parker Posey where, like, (laughs) she does this whole, like... Yeah, she's like, you have made millions profiting off her murder you are obsessed with her and you are obsessed with her daughter and i love gail it's like okay calm down geraldo <laughs> yeah. 
fucking just how she delivers that line always cracks me up. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Milton, he basically is like, look, when we made the first stab movie, I realized it was about Marine Prescott. He's like, he's, but, like I, he's like, I knew he's like, when we made the first stab movie, I realized I'd known Marine Prescott as Reno Reynolds. I couldn't tell people that. Could you imagine the publicity? And now all and uh, I like Gail. She's like, and now murder's on your set and you still don't tell anyone. It would make me a suspect. Why? Because you knew her? Not really. Well, then the conversation takes a little bit of a darker turn. We now interrupt your screen movie kids for a uh, a extended monologue about the uh, Me Too movement. <laughs> so Milton suddenly says, "Look, I knew Rena Reynolds back in the day. This was the '70s. I was very well known for my parties." She knew what my parties were, where young women could come and meet men who would get them roles. Maybe they did take advantage of her. Like, he doesn't outright say it, but... Mm. Yeah. he He pretty much implies that... Sydney's mom was gang raped. Yeah, they. Uh, you know, it's so. In, I, I'm. I still wrestle with this movie, Cordell, because if I can be serious for a second, I don't. I don't get what the movie. Uh, I'm not sure what the movie's stance is. You know what I'm saying there? I. I don't understand. What is Wes Craven trying to say? You know what well, I mean? I, I don't. There is a paragraph here that I want to read you that's on Wikipedia about this. Because this movie, and this scene in particular, got basically re- like re-evaluated. Mm-hmm. After, I mean, let's not forget, the screen movies up until, like, recently were part of the Weinstein production. Mm-hmm. Part of the Weinstein production included the now disgraced producer Harvey Weinstein, who was convicted for a shit ton of um like sexual assault, sexual abuse, just all of this shit, like years of abuse against his actresses. Mhm. And it's really kind of funny to see how even though this movie came out in 2000 and Harvey Weinstein wouldn't get like Harvey Weinstein wouldn't fall from grace until almost 17 years later, it is very interesting to see how this movie kind of foreshadows that. Oh, yeah, I mean... Do you want me to read this paragraph? 
Uh, yeah, read the paragraph. Um, uh, what I'll just say, the, the prelude you read in the paragraph is, yeah, I mean, knowing now what we know about Harvey Weinstein, um, I think I will take the charitable view. And I, I like to think that this is Wes Craven kind of in his own subtle, you know, making fun of Hollywood, kind of calling out the sleazy, you know, like aspect of Hollywood, the whole casting couch sort of culture. And this is Wes sort of, you know, yeah, calling out people like Harvey Weinstein and being like, yeah, like you people are fucking scumbags. Like this is how the system works, you know. Um. So, yeah, that's I, I guess that's how I choose to interpret it. But, yeah, re- read the paragraph. All right. So this is on the Scream 3 Wikipedia page. In the wake of the scandal involving Scream Films executive producer Harvey Weinstein, several publications noted the parallels between Weinstein's crimes and the themes of abuse featured in the film, particularly those involving Maureen Prescott. Um, Christian Yono, Yansu Kim, I'm not sure who that is, I think it's a journalist, noted the scene in which John Milton, portrayed by Lance Henriksen, discusses taking advantage of aspiring actresses. In 2019, the film's editor discussed those particular themes and Wes Craven's approach to them, saying of Henriksen's character, Wes, I think, was very interested in that character, not necessarily as the villain, although he certainly is a villain, but as a catalyst for the villain's motivation. He's really the spark for the events, or retcon that, that he is the spark for the events of the entire series. You know, can if I can stop you here, just because just I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot since I finished the movie right here. This movie, Cordell, and I would be interested in your thoughts here. I don't think this movie is saying, this movie is basically putting forth the theory and tell me if I'm totally crazy here that what's behind all of these events that have shaped Sydney's life, right? All these killers, it's kind of the fault of Hollywood itself, right? Like the system, like the, the yeah, movie that's, industry. That's really is, what I think that statement was saying. And it's beyond just, you know, like Lance Hendrickson or uh, it's the fault of the movie corrupt industry itself is what basically has caused this entire series. Well, let me fin- let me continue with this. In 2020, Adam White Adam White wrote that the film was an angry indictment of sexual misconduct in Hollywood, predatory men and the casting couch. He noted several instances of transactional sex within the film, including characters Jennifer and Angelina both making references to having sex with filmmakers in order to secure roles in the fictional stab film, and Carrie Fisher's cameo role, who claims that the role of Princess Leia was won by the one who slept with George Lucas. Um, White also noted that Rose McGowan, who appeared in the first screen film, later accused Weinstein of raping her in a hotel room a year after the film was released. McGowan revealed in 2017 that she received a $10,000 settlement, a $100,000 settlement as a result of this attack. Um, writing for Sci-Fi Wire, Emma Frazier commented that throughout the series, Maureen Prescott is slut-shamed and victim-blamed. Frazier also lamented the film's lack of exploration of these themes, 
stating that the film could have been a fascinating look at the crimes of the hollow of the Hollywood industry and the relationship horror has with sex. You know, what's interesting about that, or at least what I would say is the only people in these movies who do that though, to Marine are the killers, right? Like Billy and Stu and et cetera, et cetera. Well, no, it's not just Billy Stu, because let's not forget, remember in the first screen movie when Sydney was in the bathroom crying, those two bitchy girls came in and started slut shaming her mom. Ah, yeah, you're right. Hmm. So Maureen Prescott in the film in the in the screen franchise is universally thought of by the general public as a slut. And she's victim blamed for her murder. You know, she's called a home like she's blamed for break for being a home wrecker, for ruining Billy's parents' marriage. So I understand what this article is saying. Um, but no, I agree with what this Adam White wrote that the, that Scream Three is an angry indictment of sexual misconduct in Hollywood, because that's really what this does come off as. This almost feels like Wes Craven looking at Hollywood and being like, "You guys make money off of sexual sexually mistreating women." Yeah, no, I, I, that's, uh, I agree with that. I think, I think Craven is criticizing it. Craven is definitely saying that, you know, that you guys who like host these parties, you guys who like, you know, cast actresses just because you want to sleep with them, you guys are scumbags. <laughs> but I do think, I, I think Scream Three is a little messy. I guess is what I would say. Yeah, I don't think Scream 3 really drives the point home. I I would be interested. It's a shame Wes Craven is no longer with us. I I think he passed away, like, right before all the Me Too stuff, actually. Um, Um, let me... The Me Too movement really kicked in around, like, what, 2017, 2018, 2016? Yeah, and I I think Wes Craven died right before that. Yep, he died August of 2015. And that's really a shame because I would love I would have loved to know, like, you know, like what his actual intent was, you know. Um, So, yeah, it's it's really a shame that we don't you know, if he'd even lived like two more years, we could have gotten some insight into that. But I will choose Cordell to I will choose to take the very favorable view. And I will say that to me, I really do think this film is an indictment of Harvey Weinstein and the Hollywood system at large. And I think Wes Craven is very clearly trying to say, you know, like, fuck all these people who take advantage of women. But is it done in like, you know, the most the the best way it could possibly be done? No. (laughs) so basically milton kind of reveals all this really heavy shit about what happened to sydney's mom and then he basically tells him to get the fuck out so we cut to the police station and what 
Yeah, no, so this is when Sydney, Sydney and Kincaid, they're kind of like bonding because they're having like a kind of a heart to heart. And this this is when Kincaid is talking to her about how he grew up in Hollywood, but all he sees now is like murder, basically. And I like the line when he talks to her, he's like, you're not the only one who just sees ghosts. And he's talking about like, you know, you can't arrest a ghost. Like, all you can do is just watch a horror movie in your head over and over again. And, um, you know, you kind of get the sense that, like, Kincaid and Sydney are both, you know, equally, maybe not equally, but they're both damaged people. They've seen some shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Kincaid tells Sydney, he's like, look, the good news is that I believe you that someone attacked you. And so he, he's going to go leave to search the set some more. And uh, before he leaves, Sydney asks him, you know, what's your favorite scary movie? And he goes, my life. <laughs> and she's like, me too. <laughs> well, we cut back to Dewey, Gail and Jennifer and they're driving down the road. And <laughs> Jen, she thinks she's got it all figured out. It's like obviously it's gotta be Milton. He's he's the one that binds it all together. And Gail was just kind of like, no, he's a sick fuck, but that's really all he is. Um, well, then Dewey gets a phone call from Sydney saying that. Roman wants to talk to her, or Milton wants to talk to her at Roman Bridges' house. So no, it's he, Milton's house at, at Milton's mansion. At, you know, it's Milton's house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the like party's at. So she's gonna. So she's at. You know, tells him to meet him over at Milton's mansion. So. They get there, and you want to know what's kind of fun. So they pull up to this mansion. It's a nice mansion. Mm-hmm. And fun, fun little fact about this mansion. This is the same place that served as Hillcrest Academy in Halloween H2O. Oh, really? That's cool. That's cool. Yep, and the house would later again be used for the ending of a 2016 movie called The Neon Demon. That's cool. I, I want to see that movie. I hear it's really good. But, uh, yeah, so they roll up to this house, and uh, they walk in, and Roman lets them in. And uh, Roman is, uh, you know, drunk off of champagne. He's depressed. He's wandering around his house, which, you know. It's a nice preview for how I spend most of my birthdays, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, Angelina and Tyson are also there. Come on, Cordell. That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someday I got to tell you, last New Year's Eve, I was just drinking champagne out of the bottle. I was fucking shit-faced at like four in the morning. It was terrible. Anyway. And I got to say, Cordell, though, to carry on with that, though, Mil- uh, Roman's party consists of, like, three people. <laughs> and I got to tell you, dude, three people does not a party make. <laughs> well, it's three people until Dewey, Gale, and Jen show up. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. This is a pretty lame fucking party. <laughs> 
So uh so Dewey and Gale and Jen show up and they're like, Oh, where's Sydney? And Sydney hasn't shown up. Well Roman he starts talking about, you know, like, you know, Milton used to have his, you know, seventies orgy screening room. Uh, you know, in this old house. I want to explore and find it. And uh so he asked Jennifer to go with him and she does, and uh Angelina and Tyson are basically like it's not a good idea to go wandering around this house, but I mean, we might as well go with you. And Dewey and Gail are like, well, we're going to stay here and wait for Sydney. And, uh, so Roman and, Ange- and, uh, Jennifer, they start, they're wandering around and they find the steps to the basement. And, uh, so Roman goes downstairs and it's just full of all these like old horror props, which is pretty cool. But I love the fucking back and forth Roman and Jennifer have. <laughs> How does Go Cordell? He's like, uh, they're basically like, you know what I'm fucking talking about. There's a lot of dialogue in this movie, a lot of like big dialogue scenes. So it's really hard to remember a lot of it. What that means, kid, is kids is Cordell doesn't remember. <laughs> Well, then I probably should not have been drinking Fireball tonight. <laughs> oh, we're really off to the races now, aren't we? Well, basically, basically, Roman and Jennifer go back and forth, and uh, he's like, she's like, don't pretend I'm not the best you ever had. And he's like, don't pretend I remember. You remember that, Cordell? <laughs> oh, shit. That's... Damn. That well, uh, is enough to really knock a man or a woman off their fucking high horse. <laughs> so Roman's exploring down there and we get like a jump scare where like the ghost face costumes down there, but it's just on a mannequin. And uh, so he's like exploring and he kind of like he, Roman like hears a noise Cordell or something. But, you know, he looks up sort of like kind of apprehensively. Well, uh, Jennifer, she's like, you know, like, Roman, where are you? So she heads down the stairs. Well, we cut back to Dewey and, oh, we, uh, we actually follow Tyson and, uh, Angelina. They, like, go upstairs. And, you know, they're basically like, you know, this is a bad idea, but we might as well stick together. Well, uh, Gail asks Dewey, she's like, hey, why don't you try, you know, star 69 and calling back the number that called you from who you thought was Sydney. So he does and a fucking phone rings in like a closet right next to them. Well, they open it up and they fucking they find the ghost face outfit and the voice changer, Cordell. And I love fucking Gail. He immediately starts fiddling with that voice changer. She's like, what is this? <laughs> and it's uh, it's in Dewey's voice. Gail's voice, Sydney's voice. Basically, they realize that he's got all their voices. So uh, Gail and Dewey, they're like, oh, shit. We're like, you know, we got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> So they uh they decide to do a very dumb thing and uh they split up. Dewey gives Gail his gun. And uh so Dewey runs upstairs, he finds Tyson, and he's like there she he's like, Well, I can't find Angelina, she just like vanished on me. Well, Gail, she walks down into the basement 
and she's kind of looking around. Well, she finds the one coffin Roman was like looking at. Well, she opens it up and fucking Rowan's dead inside, covered in blood with the knife in his chest. And uh, did you notice, Cordell? She even checks his pulse. Guy's fucking dead. Oof. <laughs> yeah, that's. I love when she slams it down on him. She So she backs up into a corner and who should pop out? But Johnny's like, is he dead? Yes, very. <laughs> So, uh, and I love how, like, she just grabs Jen and they run upstairs, not even considering that maybe Jen stabbed and killed Roman. Yeah, Gail, uh, Gail's pretty trusting of Jen, I got to admit. So they run, they run back upstairs and this might be my favorite fucking scene in the movie just because it made me laugh so hard, Cordell. So they uh like Angelina pops out of some fucking secret passage and she's like, oh, my God, guys, look, I found a secret passage. <laughs> and then, yeah, the second Gail and it should be said, uh, Cordell, this whole movie, right? Angelina has like played this like, you know, innocent like, oh, my God, oh, shucks. I'm just happy to be here. You know, <laughs> as soon as Gail tells her she's like Roman's dead. It's like a switch flips. <laughs> And I just love how this actress delivers this line. <laughs> Gail and Jen are like, we got to find Dewey and get out of here. And Angelina like turns around and screams at them. She's like, I did not fuck that pig Milton to get a leading role just to die here with second rate celebrities like you. Damn. <laughs> she fucking cracks me up. So Angelina takes the fuck – she takes off down the stairs, and she's basically like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Well, she rounds around the corner, and who should she run into but Ghostface? And she doesn't make it very far, Cordell, because Ghostface grabs her, and he stabs the fuck out of her. Yeah, no, Angelina, she's done. And uh, it's – I don't know. Mouth. Well, being the mousy character, she survived pretty long into this movie. The um, the popular fan theory, Cordell, and just to kind of preview it, is a lot of people think Angelina was supposed to be a killer in this movie. So basically she was going to be the first killer's, like, accomplice. Yes. She was going to be... She was going to be the stew marker to blah, blah, blah's Billy Loomis. Yes. Mm. What do you think about that theory? Well, it definitely would have been a twist. I think it would have been more of a twist maybe if Jen had turned out to be one of the killers. You know, maybe she was, maybe Jen was just fake acting all this time, acting like a ditz and extreme and everything. And she's actually pretty, like, you know, fucking level headed and shit. Yeah, I but, mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to look here at, like, you know, who, um, Angelina just hasn't really been around much for me to even consider her a suspect. They've tried to make Angelina a suspect, 
but I don't really ever view her as that. Honestly, I think that uh, I see why people kind of get that idea, but I, I I don't really believe it. I believe that what this movie tells us is the truth. But we'll get to that shortly. <clears throat> Because, uh, yeah, so Angelina gets stabbed and uh, Gail and Jennifer, they look down and they see she gets, like, dragged away. I love how they look at each other and then they just scream. <laughs> well, they find Dewey. And I love this scene. They're like, he got Angela and Roman. We got to get out of here. Ghostface comes out of left field and he just fucking clocks Dewey right across the face. <laughs> Jennifer's like to Dewey, she's like, we'll be safe if we stick together, right? And Dewey's like, yeah. And then one second later, Ghostface pops out and fucking clocks Dewey. Well, he chases uh, Jen and Gail into this room <laughs> where Tyson is. He's like, what's going on? Oh, shit. Well, he pushes... Um, he pushes Tyson down. Well, Tyson actually, he like slams Ghostface against the wall, but Ghostface oh, fucking, he, he stabs push, him in the... No, he, pu- he, pu- he pushes Tyson down first, and then Dewey runs up, and he like cuts Dewey across the arm, and then that's when Tyson like tries to football tackle him. Like, Ghostface is having none of it, because he just fucking stabs Tyson in the stomach, and Tyson yeah, goes down. Yeah, go Tyson. He's not just going to be a stereotypical, you know, horror movie black guy. He's actually going to try to do something about it. Nah, he, he gave it a good effort. But, well, uh... <laughs> so, he stabs Tyson in the stomach, and Tyson kind of, like, falls to the ground. And I like Gail. She picks up this fucking vase and she chucks it at Ghostface and it just hits him right in the back of the head. (laughs) And that's when he like he tries to swipe at her on the bed. Well, Tyson gets up and he tries to run off and to call for the police, which he's like, help, police, police. And there's like fucking nobody around. I don't why he thought that would work. Well, Jen, she she runs into, like, this closet, and she's, like, trying to hide. No help. (laughs) But she actually triggers this sort of, like, secret passageway. Like, the wall sort of, like, flips around on her. Well, uh, Ghostface, he's looking at, like, between Gale and Tyson, and he decides to go after Tyson. And, uh, so Tyson's making a run for it down this hallway while Ghostface... (laughs) Tyson's, like, running across this big rug, and Ghostface grabs the end of it, and he fucking pulls that shit out from under Tyson, and he goes fucking flopping. Well, uh, so Ghostface, he comes running up, and he grabs Tyson, and I feel bad for this guy, because Ghostface smashes him into a fucking, like, glass case. Like, that shit is painful to watch, Cordell. Oh, yeah. And so uh, goes what he ends up doing to him to find so Ghost, Yeah, so Ghostface smacks is basically like smacking Tyson across this hallway. He smashes him into this glass case, then he takes his ass and chucks him out this window, uh, out this balcony. Yeah, aren't they and, on a second story balcony? 
And Tyson goes fucking splat. <laughs> yeah, he hits the concrete. Well, uh, so we cut back to Jennifer. So she's kind of following the secret passage. Well, she goes down these stairs. And unfortunately for her, the stairs lead right to where fucking Ghostface is at. And, yeah, I, I mean, Ghostface knew she was in there, though. Yeah, it's a little confusing. It's almost like Ghostface, like, went from killing Tyson to, like, into the secret passage. And, like, the secret passage stairs led to where Jennifer was at. But, uh, so he chases her up the stairs into this, like, closet mirror hallway. And so she's kind of in, like, this, like, back. So the room that the bedroom Dewey and Gail are in has, like, a bunch of mirrors on the walls. I like the secret passages, but mm. that mirror hallway where it's a one-way view into the bedroom, but you can't see into the mirror, I really have some fucking questions on, like, what kind of shit Milton has go on at his house. I mean, Cordell, the guy has a one-way mirror into the bedroom. You that, know what's going on in his well, house. That's fucking creepy. Lance Hendrickson is watching you fuck, Cordell. Mm, I think, <laughs> just think might just make my dick shrivel up over that. <laughs> he's, he's behind the mirror fucking jerking it. <laughs> oh, man. I'm trying yep. to traumatize Cordell tonight, kids. Yep, my next relationship is going to be completely celibate. But, uh, so Jen, she's trying to fucking, she's basically fighting off Ghostface. Well, Dewey and Gail, she's, like, banging on the mirror. She's trying to get the attention. Dewey and Gail are on the other side talking, and it's kind of, like, darkly funny because they can't hear her. Even though, you know, she's, like, screaming and pounding on the mirror. Finally, Dewey, he notices the, like, mirror is shaking, and he's like, Gail, you see the mirror? (laughs) Well, uh, so Ghostface, he comes up on Jennifer, and she she does pretty good. You know, she kicks him off at first. She's trying to, like, fight him off. Well, Dewey's, like, the slowest fucking guy in the world. Because, uh, he yeah, takes his gun. Like, he, like, shoots out the windows, like, slowly, one by one. Yeah, he starts, like, fucking shooting out the mirrors one by one. Well, meanwhile, on the other side, we see Jennifer, like, Ghostface comes up on her. She kicks him away a couple times, and finally he gets up on her and just stabs her in the chest. And uh, just as Dewey shoots the last mirror, she fucking falls out of it all bloody. Yeah, okay, this is the one kill where I don't, where I feel like, because he didn't stab her in the chest, he stabbed her in the stomach. Yeah, I agree with you. I've always felt this way about this movie because out of all the, like, new characters, Jennifer has gotten the biggest, like, she almost could be, like, our fourth main character. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like she got stabbed in the stomach and, but we only saw her get stabbed once. It wasn't like a... So I feel like... Out of all the kills, I feel like this is the one that she should, like, Jen could have survived that. You know, yeah, I how, really. 
I I feel like there was a cut. There could have been a cut scene at the end of this where we find out Jen survived or something. Because that just yeah. I mean that just doesn't seem like enough to kill Jen. Yeah, for her to go out this way, really, uh, I don't know. It's it's not a good kill for the character. If they really honestly. wanted to make it like darkly humorous, they could have had it where Dewey accidentally shot her through the meal. Every time I watch this movie, I feel like that's where it's going to go. You know what I mean? Now, that would be fucking fitting if Dewey, like, shot the mirror and, like, shot her in the head or something. But, uh... Yeah, so so Dewey and Gale, they basically split up again. They're like, we gotta find Tyson. We gotta get out of here. And, um... I think that's funny. They think Tyson's still alive. <laughs> so they run downstairs and Dewey and Gale split up. And um Ghostface, he kind of like grabs Gale when she comes around the corner. And so Gale and Ghostface kind of fight a little bit. And uh they end up back at the basement stairs. And uh uh, Gail basically she puts up a pretty good fight and she like kind of kicks Ghostface and they both end up like falling down the basement stairs Uh, and so Gail lands at the bottom and Ghostface is like on the bottom like steps and he's kind of knocked out a little bit so we cut back upstairs and Dewey he's walking around and he sees Tyson basically splattered outside by the pool so he runs back uh, inside, you know, asking for Gail. Well, his phone rings, and it's Gail downstairs. And they kind of play with this whole little, like, because Dewey knows there's the voice changer. So he's like, how do I know you're the real Gail? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a little bit of comedy because she's like, you know. I, I forget what she says exactly, but, you know, she's like. If I wasn't the real Gale, why would I say this, you know? Just tell him something from your private sex life that only Dewey would know. (laughs) Well, uh, so Dewey opens the door, and, uh, well, Ghostface wakes up just in time. And Dewey pulls out his gun, but he's all out of bullets. So Ghostface looks up, and he fucking throws his knife. (laughs) And... Wouldn't you know it, the knife fucking perfectly hits Dewey with, like, the blunt end on the head. The handle, like, just cocks him in the head. <laughs> it, like, knocks him out. So Dewey falls down the stairs, and we get, like, you know, Ghostface is, like, menacingly looking over Gale and Dewey. This Ghostface, like, he ain't fucking playing. <laughs> Paper clippings. You know, about Sydney from the first movie and second movie. And uh, make sure you're still recording, Cordell, because I think it, like, auto-stopped. Um, no, we're still recording. See, when, apparently what uh, Skype does is when you go over four hours on a record, it starts a whole brand new record. <sighs> Shit, man, we're over four hours? <laughs> so basically I have to merge the two recordings together. Yeah. <clears throat> oh. <clears throat> I knew this was going to be a long one. <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest, this movie, there's a lot more to talk about in this movie than there were in the previous two. Oh, yeah, man. 
But uh, so Sydney gets a phone call and uh, Ghostface kind of plays a game with her where she goes hello and it's her voice saying hello back. And uh, eventually she's like, look, I'm just hearing myself. And that's when Ghostface cuts in. And, uh, you know, he's like, hello, Sydney. The question is not who I am. It's who's with me. And she hears Dewey and Gale in the background, you know, being like, don't come here. And uh, so Ghostface tells Sydney, he's basically like, you know, you're going to come to where I, you know, you're going to leave. I'm going to tell you where to go. Or else, you know, you're never going to see Dewey and Gale alive again. Well, Sydney, so she's in Kincaid's office, and uh, so she's rummaging through his desk, and she steals his car keys, and she opens up his desk drawer, and she steals, like, a mini pistol of his. <laughs> well, uh, so uh, Ghostface is basically like, all right, come to where I'm at. Well, I'm kind of sad, Cordell, because you don't get the scene of, like, Sydney on the freeway with Ghostface calling her, and he's like, all right, take this exit. <laughs> well, that would have been a little boring, I'll be honest. <laughs> but, so we just cut to Sydney. She rolls up to Milton's mansion. By Ghostface. And once again, Milton is the best boss ever, because he even has, like, a big banner that says, Happy Birthday, Roman. Did you notice that? <laughs> Like, uh, you know, he's got this place all decked out for three people. <laughs> but uh, so Sydney rolls up and she sees Tyson dead by the pool. Well, Ghostface calls her. And he's like, you see the metal detector and there's a metal detector by Tyson. And he's like, all right, now use it. So she kind of runs it all over herself and it goes off by her leg. And he's like. All right, pull it out. So she pulls out the little gun of Kincaid's. And Ghostface is like, all right, throw the gun in the pool. So she does. And she's like, well, how do I know Dewey and Gale aren't dead already? And he's like, take a look. So she looks in and she sees Dewey and Gale are like tied up to a chair, you know, tied the chairs back to back right inside. He's like, now everyone's here and the fun can begin. So Sydney, yeah, she hangs up on him and she goes to, um, she runs over to Gail and Dewey and, um, he starts to ungag them. Well, Ghostface comes up behind her and he like backhands her across the face and she goes down. Well, he pulls out his knife, and he takes the moment to look at Dewey and Gale, like as if he's decided to stab them. And this is one of my favorite lines of the movie. Sydney has uh, an extra hidden gun in her, like, down by her shoes. She pulls out this little pistol, and she goes, think again. It's your turn to scream, asshole. Mm-hmm. And she plugs Ghostface a couple times right in the chest. I love when she pulls the gun out on him, how uh, Ghostface kind of, like, backs up a little bit, like, oh, shit. <laughs> so he goes down in the hallway, and uh, so Sid goes and 
unties Dewey a little bit more. Well, she looks over and fucking Ghostface is gone. I know. Gail's like, Sydney, where'd he go? Well, uh, so Sid fucking, you know, she starts looking towards the hallway. Well, who fucking pops right out of the hallway, Cordell? But uh, old Detective Kincaid with his gun out. And that's looking pretty fucking suspicious, wouldn't you say? It's like, yeah, I always knew you were kind of sus. <laughs> so uh, Kincaid and Sidney both have basically like guns pointed at each other. And he's like, you know, I came to investigate like what the hell is going on. And, you know, for a couple minutes, we're basically like, oh, shit, Kincaid's the killer. Well, uh, Kincaid finally, I think, realizes, like, okay, I need to, like, you know, not fucking present myself as a threat. So he holsters his gun. Well, just then, fucking Ghostface comes up behind Sydney, And uh, so Kincaid jumps in. <laughs> Did you notice this, Cordell? He, like, throws Sydney out of the way, but she whacks her head on the fucking, like. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to try to save you. But I'm also going to, like, throw you into something and knock you out in the process. <laughs> well, uh, Kincaid, uh, he tries to fight Ghostface, but I got to be honest with you. This guy is not the world's greatest cop because uh, <laughs> Ghostface kicks the shit out of him. Well, he kind of does at first. Like, he kind of manages to hold his own. Uh, it's... Um, it's uh, where Kincaid fucks up is he gets uh, Ghostface, he knocks Ghostface on the couch, and then Ghostface uses that as an opportunity to, like, use his feet to push him back and basically uh, knocks him into the fireplace. And he gets stabbed, too, doesn't he? Ghostface, like, stabs him in the chest. Yeah, he stabbed him when he uh, pushed Sydney out of the way. Yeah, so uh, Kincaid gets his fucking head smacked into the fireplace. That made me, <coughs> dude. That made me went so fucking hard. <laughs> yeah, poor Kincaid. Well, uh, so Sid takes off running. Yeah, He's this like, is when she's come get me, asshole. <laughs> so she runs into like this other study and uh, she starts like fucking with the bookshelf. I don't know how she knows how to do this, but. Uh, she basically finds, like, the hidden passageway they've been looking for. She she runs into the study, and she sees light coming from behind the bookshelf, so she knows there's a hidden room behind there. Well, she finds the right book and uh, pulls it, and, you know, the bookshelf swings open to reveal a door. So she goes in, and uh, so this is, like, a private screening room. And I got to say, this is a sweet setup, Cordell. He's got, like, a bar back there. Like He's got a bar. He's got a full-on fucking, like, movie theater screen with draw curtains. I know, right? I, I want a fucking, like, 70s movie orgy room. Like, come on, man. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it that, though. But uh, so Sid walks in and who's up on the screen? But there's all this like footage of her mom playing. And uh, she hears her mom's voice. And uh, the bloody body bag walks out. 
And I, I forget what her mom says, but, you know, it's something like, you know, come to mommy, basically. And uh, Ghostface pulls the body bag off and, you know, yeah, it's Ghostface. And uh, is this when he, yeah, this is when he pulls the mask off, right, so, right, uh, Cordell? Nope. So, uh, so Sydney tries to tries a few of the doors to get away because she basically realizes, realizes, shit, I'm stuck. And so Ghostface says, "You're not going anywhere, Sydney. It's time you come to terms with me." And with mother. Maybe you never knew her at all, Sydney. Maybe you just couldn't get past the top of things. This is where Ghostface pulls open his cloak and reveals that he's wearing a bulletproof vest. That's why the fucking bullets haven't had no effect on him. Well, Sydney finally asks, you know, who the hell are you? And Ghostface goes, the other half of you, Sydney. I looked for a mother, too, my whole life by the act, an actress by the name of Rena Reynolds. And one and a few years ago, I actually tracked her down, knocked on her door, expecting to be welcomed with open arms. But she had a new life and a new name, Maureen Prescott. You were the only child she claimed, Sydney. She shut me out in the cold forever. Her own son. And she and he rips off the mask and oh my God, who is it, Luke? It's Roman Bridger. Dun dun dun. Roman Bridger director. And brother. So basically, we learn here and now that. Sydney has a half brother, and Roman. they don't ex- they don't explicitly say it. But uh, uh, is Roman Milton's kid? Is that the idea? I'm thinking that's what they're implying. Because this is when he goes on his whole like motive rant, and he talks about how basically he basically took a whole bunch of movies of Marine, and this is when we get all the footage of like Marine like cheating with a bunch of different guys. Billy's father. I love that line. He's like, he's like, he she slammed the door in my face, said I was Reno's child, and Reno was dead. And then I thought, what a good idea. So I watched her. I made a little, I made a little family movie. You know, it seems Marine, Mom, she really got around. I mean, Cotton, I mean, Cotton was one thing. Everybody knew about that. But Billy's father, that was the key. Your boyfriend didn't like seeing his daddy in my films. He didn't like it at all. But once I supplied the proper motivation, all the kid needed was a few pointers. Have a partner to sell out in case you get caught. Have an alibi. Poor, poor Stu. As soon <laughs> when he said that line, I was like, "Oh man, poor Stu." <laughs> it was like he was making his own movie. <laughs> so Sydney puts basically brings it together and says, "You, this is all because of you. I'm a director, Sid. I direct." <laughs> but um. Yeah, I think 
what Roman is implying is that he is John Milton's son because he's gonna he's actually gonna literally pull John out of mothballs here in a second <laughs> and accuse him of not only being his father but accuse him of raping their mother. Yeah, this is when it gets this is when it gets a little yeah, because he's like, this is when he's like, you know, this is where they did it, you know, they fucked their three ways from Sunday. And, uh, yeah, he pulls Milton out. And but I gotta say, I, I do like the line beforehand where Sydney's like, you got what you want, hero and villain face to face. Well, guess what, Roman, this is where the villain dies. And this is when he's like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna frame you. Yeah, so basically what we're getting out of this is Roman is really just jealous of Sydney. Not he's jealous that Marine chose Sydney over him, but he's also jealous of the fame that Sydney has attracted due to the Woodsboro and Windsor College killings. Yeah, and he pulls out, he has, like, a recording with the, you know, the voice changer of Sydney talking about, like, you know, you did this to my mom, I'm going to kill you, you bastard. And he's like, they're going to find that on Milton's answering machine. And, uh, yeah, so he pulls Milton out. Kind of like Sydney's dad in the first movie, actually. And, um... I love this piece of dialogue here, Cordell. This is one of my favorites because he pulls Milton out. Milton's all tied up with like his, uh, you know, he's got a piece of tape across his mouth. Well, he rips it off. And Milton's basically like, listen, Roman, like whatever you want, I can get it for you. You know, any project, any budget, uh, you know, any picture, just name your price. Final cut. It's yours. And Roman just is like, I already have it. And he fucking slits Milton's throat. (laughs) Yeah, Milton is such a fucking scumbag, like. I love that when he's like, final cut, and Roma's just like, I already have it. (laughs) Oh, that shit's awesome. Well, we quickly cut back to Gale and Dewey. They get free, and they go over to um, Kincaid, and uh, they're trying to help him. Well, he just gives him the gun and tells him to go get the bastard. Yeah, Kincaid is fucked up. He's, like, bleeding from the nose. Um, So, uh, Roman basically uh, tells Sidney that, you know, this is where Roman really kind of tells Sidney how, you know, he's going to make Sidney pay for having the life that he should have had and, you know, the family that he should have had. And Sydney just gets, you know, fucking pissed off with this shit at this point. <laughs> She's like, you know what, Roman? He's like, I'm so, would you just get on with it? I've heard this shit already. You know why you kill people, Roman? He's like, stop. Shut up. Yeah. I don't want to hear it. You know why you kill people? Because you want to kill people. So why don't you take some fucking responsibility Fuck you, fuck you. Yeah, I love it. He just loses his shit. They both say fuck you. And what follows Cordell? I don't have any notes for it. 
fucking hand-to-hand final fight in a horror movie ever. This is yes. What I, this is what I was talking about. This movie might have really cut down on the gore, but that does not mean that this movie is not brutal. Because this, oh, this scene goes fucking hard. Yeah, I don't even have any notes because I was fucking upset. Uh, I was engrossed because when they but when she says take some fucking responsibility, he's like fuck you, fuck you, and then they just fucking fight, and it is an awesome, this, brutal. They beat the shit out of each other. Oh yeah, like this movie devolves in like the worst case of sibling rivalry I have ever seen. <laughs> Like they fucking like he punches her like she punches him. I, I don't even I, I don't even I can't even do a play by play. They just beat the shit out of each other. They're throwing shit at each other. He punches her. She punches him. He back he swings again, misses, he backhands her, slams her into the thing, goes to stab her. She takes a vase, hits him upside the head, he goes down. She picks up the ghost to hit him with a chair. He fucking does one of those sweep the leg moves, causes her to go down. He's kicking her in the face. She's punching him. Well, finally, he gets the upper hand on her. And, like, he's really fucking over. Like, he's, like, kicking her in the face and... He's choking her her finally, right? Like, Yep, finally he gets to where he's choking her. Well, uh, he gets um, he gets distracted when he notices the door getting unlocked and the lights get shut off. Well, yeah. we think we think it's Dewey and Gale outside the door because we can hear them, you know, saying like, "You fucker! If you hurt her, I'll kill you." Well, the door opens and it's actually Kincaid. Who immediately gets knocked the fuck out. Yeah, this fucking guy. He walks like two steps in and uh, Roman comes in and fucking beats the shit. I think he just like smacks him or something. Well, Sidney uh, finds the knife. He's like, hey, Roman, lose something. And he just kind of smiles and goes, found something. And he picks up Kincaid's like little pistol. And he shoot, and he just fucking plugs Sydney right in the chest. Mm-hmm. So she goes down. And he walks, but he walks over, over, and he fucking shoots her again in the chest. Which this is great. You know, you would have thought this is Sydney fucking Prescott. Shoot her in the head. Yeah, Roman really fucked up there. <laughs> But, um, so he shoots Sydney. Well, he goes and he quickly, like, locks the door again. You know, he's trying to figure out what to do because, you know, now he's got to figure out how to come up with an alibi or figure out how to get the jump on Dewey and Gale. Well, he turns around and Sydney's gone. Ching, ching. I, I, I was looking. I was like, is this a Halloween reference? It has to be. <laughs> well, he starts tearing through the fucking room, kind of like Billy did in the first movie. And, uh, yeah, so we see Sydney. She's, like, uh, she's behind the bar, and she, like, 
grabs a hold of this like sharp like I don't know what the fuck it is a knife I guess. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck. But then uh, but then Roman and Sydney have like the exact same idea at the same moment, and I really love how this is cut because they both are like, oh wait a minute, if I just call their fucking cell phone, I'll oh, know fuck. where they're at. And uh, so Roman and Sydney like, and it like cuts back and forth. They both like, you know, are dialing like the last number on their cell phone. And both of their phones go off at the same time. Well, Sydney pops up from behind the bar and she fucking stabs Roman in the back because this movie loves stabbing people in the back. And uh, backstabbers, man. <laughs> right. She he just goes like right down. Right. I'm trying. Yes, yeah, he goes know. down. And, and uh, so he. um. So he goes down, and he's like, "I shot you." Well, she reveals that she's wearing a bullet uh, bulletproof vest as well from the police. And I like the line. She's like, "I guess we think alike." Well, uh, Roman has a line. He says, "Mother's dead. There's no change in that. At least I got to make my movie. Stab mm-hmm. three, right?" And she fucking takes that thing and she just stabs him like right in the chest with it. But you know what, Cordell? There, there's not really any like joy in it or passion because Roman no. is fucking dying. And Sid, I found this really interesting. I forgot this detail. Well, Sid, well, at at this point, uh, Dewey and Gail finally bust in, and I love the line from Gail: "Roman, it was Roman." But, uh, yeah, when, I was actually going to bring this up as well. You know, in the previous Scream movies, when Sydney got the jump on Billy, got the jump on uh, on uh, Billy's mom, you know, yeah. she kind of, like, did it with, like, a, not with, like, a, not with joy, but kind of like a... Oh, yeah, a little um, bit of glee, I'm, like, you know, like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, yeah, like, I'm Sydney fucking Prescott. But th- this this is almost sad a little bit. Did you get that, Cordell? Cause, yeah, and, you know, I actually looked this up. Like, I went to a couple, like, forums on Screen 3 about this because I wanted to know what people take a- took away from this. And basically the con- the consensus among Scream fans is... Sydney's really conflicted about this because, yeah, Roman is a killer, but it's also family. And it's, you know, somebody that she could have had some kind of, like, familial relationship with. But, you know, it, it's just hard for her because it's another family member dying. No, and yeah, to, to tell the listeners, and I, it's really poignant because, yeah, Dewey and Gail bust in and Roman has the knife in his chest. And Sydney, yeah, she doesn't, like, gloat about it. She she kneels down and she holds his hand. Yeah, she, and it's, it's not like he grabs her hand. She, like, puts her hand under his and grabs a hold of it. 
And, and honest to God, Cordell, I, I, I found that to be a little emotional, honestly. Like, I felt bad. Yeah, I, that's what I always um, that's what I always take away from this scene. And I, from what I've kind of read on the Internet, basically, people who've uh, looked at this movie and, like, reviewed it kind of take this as, like, Roman... Ne- Roman represents the trauma of being abandoned as a child and just the anger about the rejection and everything. And he never got over that. He stayed in the past. Everything he did in the future was all guided by the past that he could not get over. And this is Sydney realizing Two things. A, me and Roman are damaged individuals because of our mother. And it's also for her to reflect, if I keep living in the past, I could I could have ended up like Roman. Mm-hmm. No, it, it's, it's almost, and I think it's really interesting that Wes chose to play it this way. It is a very, it, it almost is a sad moment. Like, it is, I found myself, like, kind of, like, not, not, like, welling up or anything like that. But, like, yeah, it's just, it, it is a very, like, and I completely agree with you. It's Sydney like, kind of making peace with, you know, the trauma from all the stuff that's happened. But, She's not happy about killing this guy. You you know what really kind of gets me? And I know we just talked about it, like this movie's comment, the statements on like slut shaming and everything. And yeah, I mean, we could blame John Milton for putting the whole shit in motion for what led Maureen Prescott to become the way she was. But. I just feel like if a kid show if a guy shows up on my door and says that he's my son, I'm gonna hear him out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to just slam the door in the face and say, "Oh, well, you are the child of someone I used to be," and fuck that person, fuck you, and I have only one family, one child. No, you know what, Cordell? I never thought about that that way, but you're completely right, actually. It still does not make Maureen look good. (laughs) No, and it it doesn't justify Roman. It doesn't justify Roman, but it also doesn't, you know, Maureen, the way she... And, you know, some people could argue that Maureen rejects Roman because it's a reminder of her getting raped. And I know that I know that that is a very contentious sticking point with, you know, rape victims and people and victims who get pregnant due to rapes. So it could be that. But I just feel like if Maureen had had a little bit more compassion for Roman. The whole shit could have been avoided. I don't know. It's like. I'm trying not to victim blame Marine here, but at the same time, there could have been a way. You know what I'm saying? No, and I, I think that's why 
like what you and I have been discussing is uh, Scream 3, I think, really does. I think it effectively works as a tragedy. You know, like Roman Bridger is a tragic figure. And I think that's why this is different for Sydney. And he and the, exactly, you know, Roman Bridger, he represents the trauma of the Prescott family. That yeah, because never let go of the past. Every single movie, right? Like, let's think about this. The series as a trilogy, right? You have Billy and Stu, right? Who's the immediate kind of like Billy is like, your mom did this to my family. And Stu is, you know, just like the hanger on. And then in Scream 2, that extends oh, like the roots. Go- said it, as Stu said, his uh, his um, alibi was peer pressure. <laughs> But in Scream 2, right, the roots go deeper. You know, it's Billy's mob and it's uh, Mickey who, you know, it isn't so much about the movies, but more so about like the publicity. And in many ways, like, I mean, look at Billy's mom, you know. She found out she found found out her husband was cheating on her. But instead of taking her son and leaving, she fucking just abandoned her son to his father, which doesn't make Billy's mom look good either. But what I'm trying to say is Roman is kind of like the culmination, right? Roman is like the pinnacle of all of this combined, like, uh, family trauma and movie, like, obsession. And uh, that's why, for me, and I've always said this, I think Roman is the strongest killer in the entire Scream series because – Thank you. He well, one, he does it all himself. And I know there's a vocal people out there who are like, well, Angelina was his accomplice or whatever. But I, watching this movie, I think Roman did do it all himself. And I yeah, Ro- Roman represents if you watch the series as a trilogy, every single installment, the killer's motivations get deeper until we get to Roman. And Roman represents like what you were saying, the intergenerational trauma of like Hollywood and everything of Sydney's mother. And uh, that's why it, it, it that's why it, it's not a victory for Sydney at the end. It's, it's her coming to closure and recognizing like I am burying, I'm finally putting to rest all this family trauma and it's not a moment of triumph. And that's why that moment when she grafts his hand, like that really struck me because it's Sydney. She's not reveling in her victory. She's saying effectively, she's saying Roman, you and all the trauma can finally be at peace. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's it, it's really just her saying, it's almost kind of like a silent apology on her part. Like, I'm sorry that everything that happened up and you know with everything that happened with mom and everything everything that put you down this path you know it's like it's it's like a silent apology of saying i'm sorry for all of it mm-hmm. and i mean <laughs> i know we're talking like it, it's a powerful moment it really is honest to god i mean i'm gonna say this i think all i think you're right you know I think all the killers in the first three screen movies, at least those connected to Woodsboro, you know, Stu, Billy, Miss Loomis, Roman, 
you, you know, it's kind of like, because uh, like we find here, all this trauma that Roman had, this rejection, this trauma, this anger, this hate, it's that that set into motion the killings that occurred before the start of the first film. And then it snowballed up to this point. Mm-hmm. So I think all the killers in the first three screen movies all have this really deep-rooted connection. Like, they're... I mean, we're psychoanalyzing, like, movie psychos here, <laughs> but... You know, I, I think it's a pretty... I think it's a pretty powerful statement. And yeah, this scene, this touching kind of like moment between Roman and Sydney, you know, I kind of, I've always liked this scene. No, and I, I think it's telling as well is, I mean, not ignoring what comes after is every single other killer, Sydney has shot, right? But with Roman... She puts him down with the knife. And I think that's. And I think that's extremely. uh, You know what I mean? Like, it's a different, right? It's one thing to shoot a person. It's more. Stabbing someone with a knife is more personal. Especially because her entire life, Sydney has been terrorized by Ghostface, who does the stabbing. And so finally for Sydney to take the final ghost face and uh, I mean, yes, he's going to get shot in a minute, but yeah, but effect- look, effectively, but it's not going to be her that shoots him. Effectively, Sydney ends ghost face. She destroys ghost face by stabbing him, holding his hand and empathizing with him. Is extremely powerful to me. Yeah. And you're right. So. We think that Roman dies and she gets she gets up and Dewey and Gail ask him if she's okay. Well, Roman finds it in himself to get like a sudden burst of energy and he just like pops back up with the knife. Which I don't know. I would have probably just stayed down at this point. (laughs) I just love uh, Dewey keeps shooting him in the bulletproof vest. And Sydney finally is like, shoot him in the head. But yeah, but it's like you're saying, she stabs him. But when Roman finally does get shot, it's not Sydney that does the shooting, it's Dewey. And what you notice is we we get like a quick cut of Roman's face with a bullet hole in his head. And then we cut back to Sydney, and she's just leaning on the against the wall, and she's looking at Roman, and she's just got this immense look of sadness on her face. No, yeah, it's um, you know what? I'm just gonna say it, Cordell. Like, I, I don't. This ending of Scream, now that we're really digging into it, I mean, it's it's incredibly moving. You know what I mean? I, it's it's emotional. It's sad. It's and, and that's why I do not understand why the people who hate this movie, I don't understand why they think Roman Bridges the weakest of the killers. 
No, he he's by far the most complex and interesting, I would say. He's definitely more interesting than the ones that are going to come in Scream 5. <laughs> and but, fucking, I mean, not to jump ahead, too, not to spoil too much in Scream 4, but, like, the motivation of that killer is, like, fucking stupid. <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll talk about Scream 4 a little bit in a second. But, yes, Roman finally goes down. And, uh... We cut back to Sydney's cabin finally. The you know, the sun is shining. And I have always loved this scene, dude. I always think uh, the, your your co-host here has always been a little bit of a cheese ball. But even when I was in fucking like high school watching this movie, Cordell, I always thought it was super sweet when Dewey and Gale are like hanging out on Sydney's porch and uh I love how Dewey proposes to Gail by completely fucking ruining one of her books. <laughs> I always thought this was the sweetest thing ever. It is, but let me tell you something. If you ever want to fucking give a book lover a fucking asthma attack, <laughs> cut, cut a, a hole in the book. Fucking hole in the book. <laughs> <sighs> But uh, yeah, so Dewey Dewey proposes to Gail because he puts the ring in her Woodsboro Murders book, and you know, knowing that David Arquette and Courtney Cox actually actually got together and made it last another decade, you know, it's really sweet, I think. But uh, Dewey proposes. Sydney comes back from a walk, and uh, Kincaid shows up. Because we're, like we found out in Scream 5, she and Kincaid eventually become an item. Yep, he's uh, got his arm in a sling, and he's like, let's watch a movie. And what movie? As she, they go in, her front door blows open, and she walks away, leaving it open, implying that Sydney has finally rid herself of the ghost of Ghostface. Like, it's, she's not hiding anymore. Mhm. She's not going to hide anymore. She's going to. No, I mean you get it's symbolic. Yeah, and she leaves like the gate open when she comes up with the dog. You know, it's um. Yeah, it's it's Sydney finally realizing she doesn't have to hide anymore. Although I would tell all of our listeners that you know. It's good to leave your doors closed and locked. <laughs> you know, home security is still important. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, and that's uh, that's when we roll credits. And uh, yeah, that is Scream Three. Uh, I do want to quickly um. We were talking about Joshua Pius, uh, Wall- the Wallace character. Uh-huh. I forgot to look at his filmography, so I'm going to I'm at least going to give him that courtesy since <laughs> he, he didn't come back for the rest of this movie. Um, he was in a movie called Stab. He was stabbed. Um. No, he's actually been in quite a bit. He was in the original Ninja Turtles movie. Oh, was he? That's cool. Oh, shit. 
It says here he was Raphael. Oh, really? Wait, like he was actually Raphael in the suit? Damn. No, he must have been the voice. No, it says right here he appeared in Hollywood films, including Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, in which he was both in the costume and the voice of Raphael. Oh, no shit. Um... He was in one of your favorite movies. He was in the 2019 movie Joker with uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, no shit. Um, Who was he in that? I'll have to look him up. A character by the name of Hoyt Vaughn. No idea who that was, but I mean, Joker's a good movie. Uh, He was in the 2007 horror movie Teeth. I've heard of it. Yeah, I, it's it's a weird movie. Is that the vagina with teeth? Yep. Vagina dentata. Uh, he was in the 2002 psychological thriller Phone Booth. You ever seen that one? Nope, never have. I saw it a long time ago, and let me tell you, that is the most fucking boring movie I've ever seen in my life. And that's about it for, like, the movies I recognize he's been in, but... Yeah, that's kind of cool that uh, Raphael was in a Scream movie. Yeah, no, that is cool. But, uh, yeah, Scream 3, so, Luke, are you giving this... A big O, high, medium, low. Are you going to stab your cack off? I like Scream 3 a hell of a lot. And uh, I always was like, I have always liked this movie. And you know what? I got to put it out there. Watching these movies back to back to back with you and for the podcast, Scream 3 is the second best Scream movie. And let me say why that is. Because... What I will tell you is it does not have the best kills, for sure. So if you're here for the gore, Scream 3 does not have it. But what Scream 3 does have, and I know everybody loves to suck Kevin Williamson's dick, right? Everyone's like, Scream 1, Scream 2, Kevin Williamson, great. Scream 3, Kevin Williamson was replaced by Aaron Kruger, which is the best writer ever for a Wes Craven movie, by the way. (laughs) And I got to say, man, every single joke, every, like, bit of comedy about Hollywood just fucking lands for me. Like, I love all the dialogue in this movie. I love all the jokes in this movie. It makes me laugh. This movie is, like, comfort food. I think it's just fucking funny. And, yeah, like, we analyzed, honestly... This movie has one of the best ending fights in any slasher film, like horror movie, and it really is emotionally touching. What Scream succeeds at is making you care about its characters, and it, honest to God, is a tragic ending when Nev Campbell finally overcomes the final ghost face, and she takes no joy in it. You know, they beat the shit out of each other, but when <laughs> she finally st- when she finally stabs her brother she chooses to just hold his hand and basically tell him like, look, like this is all over. Like you're at peace. Mom is at peace. Like, let it go. You know, 
it's um this is going to be a really weird reference because i've only seen the one scene i haven't watched the whole show but you know in uh star wars rebels cordell when uh obi-wan kenobi finally kills darth maul for the last time yes and uh you know like this guy was trying to kill him and he he cuts him down he's dying and he chooses to you know like cradle him and hold his hand and be like it's okay um, I get that same sort of vibe off of Sydney and Roman. You know what I mean? No, I'd, that's a perfect analogy because that's actually one of my favorite moments in Star Wars Rebels. And I think that's uh, and that's why for me, I will just say this right now. Like, I think Scream is a trilogy. If you want the story of the Scream movies, it is Scream 1, Scream 2, Scream 3. And that's the story. And then if you really want like an epilogue and more slasher film, go watch Scream 4. And if you want even more, go watch Scream 5 and 6. But for me, Scream is Scream 1, 2, 3, the Scream trilogy. And I think it is an excellent capper. And honestly, I I just can't say enough good about this movie. Parker Posey's amazing. Courtney Cox is great, despite her haircut. You know, David Arquette's great. Just, I love this movie. I really fucking do. So I'm going to give this movie, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm so torn, Cordell. I'm torn. Oh, I got to go with a high. High recommend for Scream 3. Love it. And you know what? I'm gonna go deeper. I'm gonna higher. I'm gonna. I'm giving this movie the big O. You know I, what? Fuck it. I'm giving the big O. Scream three rocks. Big O, baby. You know, I think you nailed it on the head. I love this movie. I think it's got a very strong villain as the killer. You know, Roman. He's tragic. He just has a lot of layers of death to his character. The way they connect him to Sydney. Um, this movie's got so like so much funny dialogue. You, you know, a lot of people complain that this movie is more comedic and less violent and less bloody than the previous two. But you know what? That doesn't that doesn't kill this movie to me. Like to me, this movie, I don't need a lot of blood and gore to like a horror movie, and I certainly don't mind if they make it a little funny. Yeah, uh, it's just I'm just glad to have the original cast back. I'm glad they managed to find a way to shoehorn, you know, Jamie Kennedy in here. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know what to say about this movie that I haven't already said out in public before. Like to me, Scream Three is one of the best in the Scream franchise. I mean, I usually watch this one before I watch one or two. So, to me, I know a lot of Scream fans, some horror fans might be, might read this and be like, what the fuck? But to me, <laughs> this is a big old movie. I love this movie. Love this cast. Just a fucking great film. And to top that off, I got some more trivia if you want to hear it. (laughs) All right, let's hear it. 
Yeah, I mean, very well put, my friend. I mean, yeah, Scream 3, man, underrated, dare I say. Roman Bridger, the director of the movie within the movie, complains that he had to make a horror film before he was allowed to make a classic love story. This echoes something similar that happened to Wes Craven. He had had to agree to make this to make Scream 3 before he was allowed to make the musical drama Music of the Heart. Never seen it. I I really don't want to see it. <laughs> Neither do I. Um, let's see. Wes Craven was briefly considered for the role of John Milton. I was keeping an eye out. I was like, is Wes giving himself a cameo here? But I didn't spot him anywhere. That would have been fun, though. Liev Schreiber insisted that Cotton Weary should remove his jacket in the opening sequence. Schreiber had been working out a lot at the time and wanted to show off his physique. So you were talking about his physique there you go he's pretty fucking buff in this movie (laughs) um there's pretty a lot of pretty interesting uh trivia here i'm trying to find some that are like really good david boyanis was considered for the role of mark kincaid Um, takes place three years after the events of Screen 2. No, that's incorrect, sir. All right, I wanted to ask you about this. Hold the phone, Cordell. Because when Cordell, not Cordell, when Roman is talking at the end, does he not tell Sydney four years ago I knocked on your mother's door? Yeah, you know what? I don't really want to get into the timeline of this movie because I was trying to think about that and I was like, because that basically implies that fucking Scream 3 happens like one year after Scream 2. But that doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, actually, that doesn't make any sense at all. I guess yeah. we should just I guess we should just ignore that line. <laughs> yeah, let's do that because I don't really wanna. Three years after Scream Two makes a lot more sense. <laughs> At one point, Gail makes a comment that Jennifer Jolie was in a relationship with Brad Pitt. Coincidentally, the two actresses her character is named after are Jennifer Aniston and Angelina Jolie both of whom would be married to Brad Pitt at certain points after this film's release. <laughs> uh, Christopher Walken was considered for the role of John Milton. Kate Winslet, Sh- Shannon Doherty, and Charisma Carpenter were close contenders for the part of Christine. Ooh, this one's kind of dark. Sydney was written in earlier drafts of the script to have been suicidal in addition to suffering nightmares and PTSD. There was a scene in the script where Sydney goes to the bathroom and looks at her scars from a failed suicide attempt, but this was written out of later drafts. Wow. Damn, that's, that's crazy. That's pretty dark. Um... 
Jonathan Jackson, James Vanderbeek, Josh Hartnett, and Paul Walker were considered for the role of Tom Prince. Selma Blair was considered for the role of Jennifer Jolie. This is the first screen movie not to feature Ghostface saying the Hello, Sydney line. <laughs> Alicia Silverstone was offered the role of Angelina Tyler, but turned it down. Ironically, as Scream 2022 would reveal that in-universe, Silverstone played the stab version of Tatum. That's funny. That is funny. Um... Let's see. Kevin Kevin Williamson's discarded ideas for the film's plot later resurfaced in his TV series, The Following. I've heard really good things about The Following, actually. (laughs) During their snark-to-snark combat, Jennifer tells Gail that she's not going to win any awards for playing her. Parker Posey did receive an award nomination for playing Jennifer, but did not win it. That's funny. Parker Posey is awesome in this movie, honestly. Um, Liv Tyler and Jennifer Connelly were considered for the role of Christine Hamilton. I don't know if I would have wanted to see Jennifer Connelly killed on screen. It could have been fun. Benicia Del Toro was considered for the role of Roman Bridger. God, you know, you look at some of these names and it's like, oh, fuck, yeah, these people were acting back in fucking 2000. That would have been interesting, Benicio Del Toro. Because uh, that, guy, that guy's an awesome actor. Uh, some other people considered for roles in this film were Carrie Russell, Alyssa Milano, Denise Richards, and Ben Affleck. And Tara Reed. Yeesh. <laughs> Fucking Tara Reed's like in everything. Um... Since the Scream franchise is known for paying homage to classic horror films, it's possible that Cotton Weary's girlfriend, Christine, is named in tribute to John Carpenter's 1983 film, Christine. I don't know about that. I mean, Christine is a popular girl's name. This would have been fun. Ferruja Balk was considered for the role of Martha Meeks. I can see it. That would have been kind of funny. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that as Randy's sister. Um, oh, boy. And there was a lot of people considered for roles in this movie. Like, well, Scream, Scream 1 and 2 did a really good, you know, they did good money, so... You have you have to think that uh, Scream Three probably attracted Ooh. a lot of talent. 
Ellen DeGeneres screen tested for the role of Sarah Darling. Yeesh. I don't even want to get into that. Oh, you would have you would have hated this. Another idea for Jamie Kennedy to reprise his character Randy was to have him survive the stab, his stabbing and scream too, have his family having rescued him secretly. This was ultimately deemed to be too far-fetched, so Randy was resurrected via post-mortem video appearance. I mean, I don't I mean, know. We saw Randy pretty much fucking gutted. I mean, look, I love this movie like we talked about, but yeah, the, the bringing back his sister is, is definitely like the... It's not the strongest point of the film. <laughs> um, in 2009, Matthew Lillard claimed he had been contracted to reprise his role as Stu Marker, having survived his apparent death in Scream 1996, orchestrating new ghost-based attacks from prison on high school students and ultimately targeting Sydney. However, this... The script was rewritten and uh, scrapped without his character and his plot following the Columbine High School Massacre. Yeah, I'm still kind of hoping if we ever do that we might see uh, Matthew Lillard again. That would be kind of cool. I would think that would have been the plan for Scream 7, but... But, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, there's so much, there's so much here for trivia, but I just wanted to kind of talk about, like, the more interesting stuff. I think we gave Scream 3 really its due, man. I mean, I I hope people listen to this and are like, give Scream 3 another chance. Hey, I hope you like Patrick Dempsey's character in this because poor, the poor guy was hired the day before shooting began. <laughs> he had one if, night to learn three big he- dialogue-heavy scenes. I mean, if you like the guy, go watch Thanksgiving because he plays pretty much the same part. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that is Scream 3. Oh, yeah, and we made it till 3.30, Cordell. Fuck yeah. Yeah, we've been talking for five hours. I am totally not going to go fucking pass out on my couch right now. (laughs) Right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight for this episode. And we will be back in time for our Christmas episode when we come to you. Oh, oh, (laughs) oh. Yes. We will be coming back to you with a review of the 2000, another 2000 movie. Uh, We will be covering, just in time for the holidays, Jim Carrey's The Grinch. Wait, I thought we were doing the cartoon one. Cordell, you bastard. I. No. (laughs) I like The Grinch, actually. So. Until we get to The Grinch. Everybody have a safe and wonderful night and join us next time. Do you think it's over, Cordell? Oh, it's never over. 
I always come back. Have a good night, guys. <laughs>